Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 7 of his podcast, named appropriately Rado Talks Through. And... Oh, where have I been? So sorry, folks. I'm about two weeks late with this podcast. Heck, almost three weeks late. Oh, it's been busy. Of course, ever since the last podcast, I went to BGGCon, and then I spent a few more weeks in the States visiting my mom up in the Pacific Northwest, and then I got home, and I was about three weeks behind on run-throughs, and I'd gotten a bunch of new equipment that I was trying to experiment with, and I don't know where the time goes, but I am finally knuckling down, buckling down, and any other uckling you would care to mention, and I am going to talk today to you for a while. I think this is going to be a podcast where I'm really only hitting two big subjects, BGGCon and associated games I played, and travel, uh, both before and after, just kind of running you down the last month of my life. In case you're curious, I have no idea why, but you're listening, so you must be. And then after that, I think we'll do some Q&A, because actually I do have quite a bit of Q&A questions built up. And Jen's out walking the dogs right now, but hopefully she'll be back in time for the Q&A, because I'm sure she'll have something to say on some of those topics. So, that'll be coming soon, but let's jump right into it for starters with BGGCon in just a mo. Okay, so where to start? Board Game Geek Con 2015. Well, first of all, you probably already know that I have actually filmed a run-through of the show. I think it's about 50 minutes long or so, and I try my best to show everything about the convention, you know, that you would experience if you actually got to go there yourself so you can decide whether you might want to go there. Because that's the point of my run-throughs. Not to tell you what I think of something, but to let you draw your own conclusions by feeling like you're there. So, by all means, go check that out if you hadn't already seen it. The links for that will be down in the show notes of this episode. But I'll try to focus on some of the stuff that I didn't talk about in that BGGCon run-through. And you know what? What the heck? I will start out with a tale of woe. Oh my goodness. Who knew it was going to be so hard to get from Malta to Dallas, Texas? But that was just the start. But let's see. What's my situation? So we're going to fly out. And the trip out... I have to admit, I was a little crazy when I signed this up. But one, I was looking for the cheapest flight I could do. And two, I was looking for a flight that wouldn't require me and Jen to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, as we've done so many times in the past, to be able to catch the ferry and then miss the ferry. And if you heard my travel woes for Essen, I really wanted to avoid that. So I ended up coming up with this really weird travel plan to get to Dallas. They'd had me flying on Sunday night, kind of a red eye, from Malta to Moscow. Then I had a few hour layover in Moscow, and then from Moscow I went to London, instead of just directly from Malta to London like we normally do, and then from London to Dallas. And I thought, 
this will be really cool. I've never been to Moscow. How awesome would that be? And granted, I was going to be there at like 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was going to be there just for a couple of hours, so it's not like I was going to get out of the airport. But I thought, well, heck, that's going to be really neat just to be in, a, in the Moscow airport. Well, suffice to say, it was not very neat. Um, one, it was a really dumb way to travel because, you know, this whole little side thing ended up putting like five hours on the overall trip. So... But, you know, on the flip side, it meant I didn't have to... Jen, I didn't have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and Den didn't have to make this long, ridiculous trip over to the airport. At least, by leaving on Sunday, even though I had to take on five more hours of travel time, give or take, it meant Jen actually had a reasonable reason to go into Malta. She was able to do some stuff. She was able to get back home at a reasonable hour. So I was willing to take it on the chin for her. And... To be fair, <clears throat> the flight went fine. Got into Moscow, no problem. But here's the first thing I learned. Uh, the employees of the Moscow airport hate their job at 3 a.m. in the morning. And they hate you for being there. Uh, I get in, and I'm going to have to make a transfer from one flight to another. And so you know, I get off, and, I, and I'm, I'm just doing a direct transfer. I'm not actually going to pick up my luggage. Uh, but they told me that I would have to talk to somebody to get my luggage transferred from the Malta flight to the London flight. I mean, you know, that I would have to talk to somebody. So I go in, and there's, there's an actual transfer desk. There's nobody there. You know, I clear my throat. I clear my throat louder. There's just nobody there. And, you know, and eventually I just kind of say, hello. And I don't know, a little while later, this dour, sour Russian lady comes out and she is just grimacing. She is not happy to see me at all. And she says, what do you want? And that's literally, I'm not exaggerating at all. I mean, this was her hello at 3 in the morning or 3.30 at Moscow. And I explained, hi, I'm actually making this transfer from Malta to London. And she's, why are you here? And, like, well, and I try to explain again, that is wrong. That is not a good flight. I'm like, Ugh. So I don't want to get into the particulars of trying to describe you know, the reasons I'm making this flight because we have a ferry ride and, and I'm trying to make things better for my wife and all that. And she said, well, look. And I just say, well, looks is what it is. And you show me. And so I actually showed her and she looks at it for a while and she looks at me and she's just frowning and just kind of angry the whole time. And then says, you wait here. Go sit down. And I'm like, okay. So there's some chairs. I go sit down. And she's gone for like 10 minutes. Uh, and you know, eventually she comes back out. She said, "Okay, go through there. Goodbye." I'm like, "Wait, what? Is my is my luggage going to be transferred? I mean, that's why I was actually yes, yes, it's fine. Go." And that was it. That's all I got from her. So I'm like, "Okay." And spoiler alert: my luggage did not get transferred. I don't know what was going on there, but whatever needed to get done did not get done. I didn't find that out, of course, until I make it to Dallas. But that was my exciting time in Moscow. I then, you know, go through and I end up, you know, in the shopping area. And actually, everything was open. But it looked just like any airport you've ever seen, just with a lot of Cyrillic letters all over the place instead of English letters. So it wasn't really as cool. I mean, I did have a very interesting Russian encounter, which um, was just absolutely ridiculous. But otherwise, I got on the flight and then flew to England, had my layover there. That was, for the most part, fairly innocuous, fairly uneventful. The flight over to uh, Dallas was actually really nice. It was on American. And I have to admit, in the past, I've never been too terribly impressed by American Airlines. Uh, they've never really been my favorite. Uh-oh, Jen's getting back with the dogs now. I think she's hovering outside the door because she doesn't want to make noise. But if you can hear me, honey, you might as well come in. Oh, she's locked out, everybody. I'll be right back. 
Okay, where was I? Right, okay, yeah, the American Airlines flight was really great. It had Wi-Fi for a really reasonable price, so I got Wi-Fi for the whole flight. And you know, even though it was long, whatever it was, 12 hours, I guess, something like that, it was about as good as could be. They were really great. They got me bulkhead seats, which I always appreciate, unfortunately. I had to sacrifice elbow room to get leg room, but being six foot three, I will always take leg room over elbow room. And, you know, I had a hard drive full of movies and TV shows to watch. I had Wi-Fi, so Jen and I were able to Skype for a good deal of the flight. That was awesome. That was really, really great. And, you know, I eventually landed in Dallas. Now, in Dallas, a wonderful couple. Uh, I see. I'm not going to say their real names because I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to say their name. Basically, I was picked up by a guy I'd arranged this with. His board game geek username is Tom Green, or I'm sorry, no, Ref Tom Green. R e f t o m g r e e n. That is his name because years ago he used to be a roller derby referee, and his roller derby referee stage name was Tom Green because apparently, even though he himself hardly knows who Tom Green is, everybody told him, Wow, you look and sound just like Tom Green. You remind me of Tom Green. This was back at the heyday of Tom Green's powers as a celebrity. Kids today probably don't even know who Tom Green is. But anyway, so everybody called him Tom Green, so he went by Ref Tom Green. And to this day, his online moniker is Ref Tom Green. And you know, I had talked to him on BoardGameGeek. He actually reached out to me and said, Hey, if you're ever going to be in Dallas, let me know. You've got a room to stay in. And so I let him know when I was coming to BGGCon. And because uh, I got in on Monday, and Tom, not his real name, Picked me up at the airport, and he turned out to be a lovely guy, and his wife was a lovely lady. And um, so, I, no, that's not right. I got in, did I get in Sunday night? Or did I get in Monday? No, that's right. Yes, I got in Monday. He picked me up, went to his house, and basically spent Tuesday because the show itself doesn't start till Wednesday. So I spent Tuesday with him driving around because, of course, he's a local. He has a car. So I was able to get a SIM chip for my phone so I could make phone calls. And, you know, I got to get some donuts and I got to have some fast food. Oh, really about the only thing I miss in America, you know, besides family and whatnot, of course, is... Fast food, I have to admit. Oh my gosh, I love Jack in the Box so much. I always have. I loved them when they were Monterey Jacks. Heck, I even continued to eat at a local Jack in the Box back when there was all the salmonella scares all those years because I just love me some Jack in the Box. Best gourmet fast food there is. Their vanilla shakes are to die for. I uh, love me a sourdough Jack. Actually, no, not the sourdough Jack, the sourdough chicken. Their curly fries. Oh, so I got to have some of that. Um, I got to, well, we looked all over the place for a decent donut shop, and I didn't, we didn't find one, which was kind of disappointing, because I love apple fritters, too, and I was really jonesing for one. Eventually, I got one from, I think it was just a Dunkin' Donuts, or, no, 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 it was a little local boutique one, and it was okay, but it was nowhere near as good as Three Girls in Seattle which are the best apple fritters in the universe. But I had some of that, and uh, you know, we, we had some KFC, because in Europe, you can't get KFC Extra Crispy. They only have original recipe. And you know, Extra Crispy was what I ate growing up as a kid, so that's a really big childhood nostalgia thing. So I wanted to get some KFC Extra Crispy, although I was so disappointed. When did the Double Down go away? Oh my God, the Double Down was amazing! And now it's gone, so I was very sad about that. But you know, on the whole, Tom, you drove me around. He drove me to to this ridiculous board game, well, not really board game, but kind of overall geek 
warehouse store called Madness in Dallas. And, you know, it's the size, you get inside this store, it's a warehouse. It's as big as a warehouse, and it's got tons and tons of comic books, tons and tons of board games, tons and tons of you know, role playing stuff, war stuff. It was the biggest. Or I should say one of the biggest. Forbidden Planet in London is pretty big too. But this place, I think, completely eclipsed it. It was absolutely amazing. So he took me out there. Uh, he was very, very patient as I went through many more trials and tribulations trying to hit Jen's shopping list. Because whenever we go to the States, there's always a ton of stuff we have to pick up that we can't get in Europe that we have to bring back. And so we had to go to a Petco and we had to go to a Walmart and pick up a bunch of stuff. So... Tom was absolutely fantastic, so I just have to give a huge shout-out to him and his wife. She made some delicious chili for dinner, and you know we just hung around in the evening and we chatted. And in fact, actually, Tom is, has designed a board game. So his game was actually the first game of BGGCon I played. I played it Wednesday morning before we went out and... Er, no, wait, no, Tuesday. I, I played it sometime at some point before the show. And, you know, actually, I thought it was really surprisingly good. I have to admit, I have no particular interest in Roller Derby. What is the name of the game? It's Roller Derby Final Jam, I believe is the name of it. It's not in Board Game Geek, but there is. He does have a Facebook page devoted to it that actually shows video of it and, you know, pictures of it, of his prototype and whatnot. And it was really fun. It was basically, you know, the, the, the theme, of course, is Roller Derby, and, you know, each player has... You know, opposite roller derby teams, and I, have to, I know nothing about roller derby. So he, who ha- knows a ton about it, because he was a referee in roller derby for years, and so you know it was. A, it's a very loving homage, and he tried to put in all these details that really capture the spirit of the game. But the gameplay itself is basically he has specialty custom dice that you're rolling Yahtzee style, and you're trying to roll Yahtzee style. You know, roll lock, roll lock, roll lock to get your jammer. Which is, I don't know, if you don't know anything about roller derby, it's kind of like the guy who has to catch the snitch in Harry Potter Quidditch. It's the one person who has to roll around the, r- the rink faster than everybody else and jam through all the blockers of the other team. And so you're, ro- you're trying to roll to get past all the opponent's blocker cards, and, you'll, and, and there's a lot of push your luck, and it worked really, really nicely. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. And afterwards, we chatted for a while, and I had some suggestions for it, and and uh, you know, and it was a really good time, and I really enjoyed it. And I didn't expect I was going to like it. I just thought I was going to play it, kind of, in all honesty. Sorry, Tom. I was just doing it to be polite, because he'd picked me from the airport, and he kind of got me to all the places. I didn't have to rent a car. But it was actually a really fun game. And you know, I, I will just throw it out there to all the publishers. You know, If you're looking for a quirky game... That plays really, really nice. It's fun. It's fast. It's just you know, a, 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 you know, Yahtzee-ish type stuff. But like multiple rounds of Yahtzee, trying to hit different targets and mixing it up. And there, there was actually a lot of clever. Marketing. I won't go into all the detail. Like I said, you can go to the Facebook page and and see video of it. But I just want to give a big shout out because Tom and his wife were nice. His game was fun, and I had a really good time with them. And they showed infinite patience with all the crap I had to put them through. Because if I ever stay with you. You're going to have to do some heavy lifting for me just because somehow I... Well, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers, and that's certainly what happened here. But, you know, had a great time with Tom and his wife. It was actually interesting. I remember at 3 o'clock in the morning... Of course, you know, I hadn't really acclimated to... 
U.S. time zone. So I was pretty much up at 3 and 4 every day anyway, just because I had to be. But there were weird, mysterious sirens going on. And, you know, they got up too, and they were saying, oh, yeah, that's just a tornado warning. Like, what? There's a tornado coming. And, yeah, you know, and it was really weird. It was like this, if I hadn't been awake, there was no way that siren would have woken me up. I just happened to be awake anyway. And, uh, you know, they checked the news the next day, and it was just a minor warning. But that, you know, they were kind of blasé about the whole thing. It was really quite surprising to me. I was like, ah, are we going to get carried by by a twister? But it all worked out in the end. And finally, we made it to Gen Con. Now, Gen Con goes Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it's five solid days. And I am not going to talk too terribly much about the show. Again, you can check the show notes and watch my 50-minute video. I don't have to tell you about it because I showed it to you. But I, like I said, I should talk about some of the stuff that I didn't do. Well, first of all, um, there were quite a few games I got to play at the show. Although, I have to admit, apparently, I am not very good at doing conventions. The whole point of BGG Con is to go there and play games. Their library is amazing. The systems for finding game, pick-up games is amazing. Everything about it is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I'm hearing, like, you know, the guys from the Dice Tower, they were going there and they were playing, like, you know, 20 games a day or crazy stuff like that. I don't know what, but just absolutely insane. And somehow... I just didn't quite make that happen. On you know, on the first day, you know, I just kind of walked around, saw stuff, filmed a little bit of stuff. Uh, the very very cool live role playing code names event for that CGE was putting on. Saw some stuff, and I did sit down with the wonderful guys from Action Phase Games. Nick and Travis, and they actually showed me prototypes. And unfortunately, I can't talk about these prototypes at all. They showed me prototypes of five games they have in development, several of which are going to be you know, coming out in 2016. Heck, maybe all of them. I don't know. Uh, they were all good. They were all interesting. You know, there were a couple that were not really my cup of tea, but I saw that they were really well done. There were some very, very cool games, too. But I basically sat there with them for, gosh, it must have been over three hours as we just you know, looked at game after game after game, and they just wanted my feedback. And my feedback was, these are all nice. Except for the one I didn't like because it was too aggressive. And, you know, they kind of knew it wasn't going to be my kind. But, you know, really, really cool stuff. I mean, all I can say is, since I can't talk about the specifics of the game, Action Phase Games, these are the guys who have their big game to name to fame. Game name to fame is Heroes Wanted, which I have done run-throughs for. Excellent, wonderful, Euro-y, strategic superhero game. I've actually done the run-through for the expansion as well. And more recently, they did oh, they did the the cool little game that's like, hey, that's my fish, but on steroids with a bunch of extra stuff. I can't think of the name right now. They've done several games. They were great guys. And next year, watch for them because they've got a bunch of really cool games, wide variety of genres, just you know, really eclectic taste, but all very solid. And so that's all I can say. And heck, while I'm talking about, it, I'll just talk right now about the other prototypes I did play, since I can't really talk much about any of them. I, at one point, met up with Matt Leacock. In fact, Matt Leacock was awesome. I sent him an email saying, Hey, Matt, could I sit down with you over breakfast and talk about Pandemic Legacy? Because I would really like to hear your thoughts about the end game, about the longevity of it, what you, know, what you guys were going for, what the real intent was. Because, you know, that's a really hot-button topic on Board Game Geek. You know, Pandemic Legacy is evil because it encourages, you know, base consumeristic, buy it and throw it away. Because once you finish the campaign, you can never play again. And I'm like, I don't really b- agree with that. In fact, I've actually come up with my own variant for how to continue to play Pandemic once you've finished the 
campaign. And Jen and I, we've played it a couple times, and I think it works fantastically. For me, Pandemic Legacy is basically an expansion for Pandemic. Because right now, now that I've finished Pandemic Legacy, Jen and I have made it all the way through, we've finished the campaign, I can now p play Pandemic with On the Brink. Or I can play Pandemic within the lab, or State of Emergency. Or I can play Pandemic with Legacy. And you know, I can mix Legacy expansion elements within the lab elements, with State of Emergency elements, and they all work together great. And I can play Pandemic on a normal board, like what I've always played Pandemic on, or I can play it on my own customized legacy board. That you know, and, and you can see my final final thoughts to actually get a look at my final board. You can see the cities that are rioting. That's not a spoiler alert. It says on the back of the box that cities riot and stuff like that. You can see where you can see how my world has changed, and I can, can Jen and I can and have continued to play Pandemic on our special customized board. And in fact, I don't know why I would ever want to go back. To playing on my regular board because our board is special and unique and creates cool, interesting challenges that mesh brilliantly with State of Emergency and In the Lab and On the Brink. And I've still got all this really cool, unique um, gameplay content. I won't say what it is because that would be spoilers for the expansion, but... Basically, once you're done with Pandemic Legacy, you've got as much expansion content that's unique there as you do when you go out and buy On the Brink or whatever. just It's different, new type of stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, they mix and match very, very well. So, well, I'm just jumping around all over the place. Let's just stay on this. So anyway, that was my feeling, and I've come up with this variant. Um, you know, I've gotten some feedback from people. Jen, I've played it a couple times. I think it works really, really well. And I wanted to talk to Matt about that. Because well, I was just curious to hear what he said. And so he was really awesome, and he agreed to meet me, I think, on either Thursday or Friday for breakfast. And so we went down, and we ended up chatting for, gosh, over an hour, I think. And just what a sweet, wonderful guy. Although, I got to say, just about the quietest voice. Matt Leacock is a total, what was the old Seinfeld thing, a low talker? He's a total low talker. You really have to lean in because he has a very soft voice. But anyway, so we chatted for a while, and I told him what I had come up with. And um, here's the thing. Matt, and I talked to Rob Davio, the, the other co-designer of pa Pandemic Legacy, a little later. Neither of them can commit to this. But here's the thing. They originally had every intention of the world of ensuring that Pandemic Legacy, the official instruction manual, had rules for, right, here's how you continue to play afterwards. And the thing is, they had a hard deadline to hit. They had to get the game ready and done in time for its September or its October launch at Essen 2015. And there was simply not enough time to playtest the ideas that they had in mind for how to make Pandemic Legacy continue to be a playable game post-campaign. They believe it's a playable game. They just didn't have the time to do the proper playtesting. And they didn't have the manpower to do it either. And the thing is, now that literally thousands of people have played and finished Pandemic Legacy, they now have, but still own Pandemic Legacy, and I guarantee you, everybody who finishes Pandemic Legacy, they love it, or the vast majority of people do. It's why it's rocketed to the number two spot on Board Game Geek, and it will eventually hit number one. It will eventually be Board Game Geek's number one game of all time. There's just no getting around that. After Christmas is over and more and more people will play it, and more and more people see how insanely, amazingly good it is, it's my number one game of all time, easily. Um, you know, I haven't asked Jen. I should ask her if it is for her. But anyway... 
um, people are going to want to be able to continue playing it. And so there are thousands of people out there who now own you know, the game, and there are thousands of special customized pandemic boards out there. And so, and again, they're not committing to anything, but the way they look at it is, hey, we kind of have a big group of thousands of testers who could actually work with us on maybe coming up with some post campaign rules so that you can continue playing the game. Now, again, this is all they're, they're not committing to anything because of course they've got games they're working on. If anything, this is going to be a side project for them. Maybe it'll lead somewhere, maybe it won't. But bo- I talked to both guys independently and they both agree they would like very much to to see and they do believe that Pandemic Legacy can be an evergreen game even after you finish the campaign. There's no reason for you to set the box on fire and throw everything away. You should be able to continue to get lots of good pandemic joy out of it. Now for me personally, like I said, I've come up with my variant. I've played it a couple of times with Jen now and we think it works great. It captures all the fun spirit of what made Pandemic Legacy really, really cool and unique. And for us, it's just another expansion that we have that we can mix and match with our other expansions. Um, you know, I, 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 there's a thread for that on Board Game Geek. You can go check it out if you want to see more in the variant section under Pandemic Legacy. Uh, warning, it's spoilers. I wouldn't read it until after you've actually finished the campaign for yourself. Um, you know, I sent it to them as well. After the show was over, I sent them an email, and I forget, either Rob or Matt replied saying, hey, thanks for this. Thanks for the write-up. Um, we'll definitely give it a look. And I haven't heard anything since. But anyway, folks, take that with a grain of salt. Um, again, I, I just have to reiterate this because they wanted to make it very, very clear. They promise nothing, but it is something that is you know, on their list of things to do to try to make some official post-campaign rules. Maybe they'll come along, but if not, all I can tell you is my rules seem to be working pretty well. At least they do for me and Jen with our map. Heck, and I would love to hear if they work well for other people who have finished the campaign. But anyway... I bring all of that up because, remember, I was talking about, hey, what prototypes have I played? So far, I've talked about how I played um, you know, Roller Derby Final Jam. And I've talked about how I played a whole bunch of action phase games that I can't talk about. Well, let me talk about another prototype that I can't really talk about. And that was... I, well, basically, so I, I talk with Matt for a while, and you know, have a good time, and you know, and, and you know, it's not we don't just talk about the end game for Pandemic Legacy. We actually talk at length about the development of Pandemic Legacy and why they made a lot of decisions they made. And in all honesty, I'm actually really kind of embarrassed that I didn't just bring my camera out and film the whole thing because it was fantastic. It was absolutely amazing. Heck, maybe if I'd put a mic on him, I could have heard him better in the really loud you know, a cafe that we were chatting in. But I, you know, he was just a wonderful guy, very funny, and I had a great time. But one of the things that came out of it was he mentioned that he is testing a prototype for a new pandemic thing. And I can't tell you what the pandemic thing is other than to say it was not Pandemic Legacy 2 and it was not an expansion for Pandemic. It was something completely different in the pandemic universe. And so he said, yeah, I'm going to be playtesting this for uh, here at the show. Do you want to come along? And I said, yes, please. Oh, my God, I would love to do it. So I ended up getting to playtest a prototype of a new thing that shall remain nameless that has to do with pandemic but isn't straight pandemic. And uh, who did we play it with? We played it with, with Travis from Action Phase Game and with Isaac, who is the designer on Gloomhaven and Forge War, and with 
with Tom Green, uh, you know, the the guy who would, um, you know, let's see, I'm trying to remember who all, now, this is getting on to a month since I played this, so I'm forgetting who all we played it with. There was definitely Travis, there was, oh, Isaac and his wife, Christine, I think her name was. Oh, I'm so sorry if Christine is not your name. She was a lovely girl. I mean, we had a great time. And so we played that, and um, that was a hoot. That was an absolute blast. I know uh, Matt was playing it with other people, too. So that's another great thing about going to BGGCon. You can play prototypes of stuff that's coming up. So we played it. We gave him a lot of feedback. And you know, it was really interesting you know, playing it with you know, designers and, and fellow publishers because they gave like really detailed feedback, and I did, too. And, and I know Matt took pages and pages and pages of notes. So it actually feels good to know that maybe we made a little bit of an impact as well on a future project that, if you're a Pandemic fan, is super-duper cool and is... Well, no, I can't say. I can't say at all. I'm sorry, I can't say at all. That's just very cruel and unusual, but I'm just giving you my report of what I did. So I got to play this cool Pandemic prototype that shall remain nameless. But anyway, so that was neat. Love that. Uh, let's keep talking about the other prototypes. I played... Two more prototypes while I was there. And then I'll actually also talk about commercial games I played. I got to... So, I spent a lot of time with Matt Leacock, which was awesome. You know, he's one of my favorite designers of all time. He's the co-designer of my favorite game of all time. And so, it would not be complete if I did not also get to spend some quality time with Rob Davio. The, you know, the... Probably one of the industry's first full-time professional designers, because, you know, he was at... Was it Milton Bradley or Hasbro? Who put out Risk Legacy? I don't remember. Whichever one. You know, he, he's been a professional board game designer for years, working from inside the system. And then he eventually... So he made Star Wars Queen's Gambit. And, and he was the designer of Risk Legacy, which is arguably maybe one of the most important, breakthrough, influential, game-changing board games of the last five years. The legacy concept of gaming, which is now seen fruition in Pandemic Legacy, which, like I said, is going to be pretty soon ranked the number one board game on Board Game Geek. It'll probably stay number one for a while, I'd be willing to bet. Um, so Rob Davio introduced uh, this concept of legacy. And I've been super stoked about it ever since I heard about Risk Legacy, but I couldn't play it because Risk Legacy required three players, so I was never going to get a chance to play it. So imagine how excited we were when Pandemic Legacy came. Jen and I, we played it once all the way through. We love it. We love to continue playing it, and we're actually playing it through a second time with some other players, and that's been great too, but I, I, I'll talk about that some other time. But anyway... Uh, so I wanted to meet Rob. Actually, I have met Rob previously at Gen Con, briefly. But I wanted to sit down and talk to him, because I got to talk to Matt so long about Pandemic Legacy. And it turns out that Rob Davio was working, uh, was demoing some prototypes of some games as well. Two of them, in fact. One of them is called Seafall. And now this is his next big magnum opus. This is his spiritual successor to Risk Legacy, in that it's taking his ideas that he started in Risk Legacy, and then he worked with Matt and came up with more ideas for the legacy concept with Pandemic Legacy. and But his next game is called Seafall. He's actually... I forget if he's publishing himself or if he's now found a co-publisher or something like that, but he basically left his full-time cushy job as a professional board game designer with whatever it was, Hasbro or Milton Bradley or whoever, to basically follow his dream and make Seafall because it's the evolution of what he is doing with Legacy. And so... 
I really wanted to play this because once it comes out, it's a three-player minimum game and I'm never going to get a chance to play it because it doesn't support two players. And Jen and I, we only play two-player games. So I sought him out and said, please, are you demoing this? He said, yes, I am. Please pencil me down. And he did. And so I got to sit down and actually play not through one, but two full sessions of Seafall. And that was Fantastic. I had an absolutely amazing time. Uh, played with several other folks, including Stephanie Straw. Uh, she was a delight. And, um, yep. Yeah. And, oh man, I wish I had recorded this at the time because it was amazing. It was really, really interesting. Now, again, I've not played Risk Legacy, but I have played Pandemic Legacy. And the thing that was very interesting to me is the, you know, from both Pandemic Legacy and now having played Seafall and another game, which I'll talk about in shortly, called Chronicles Origin, it really strikes me that what Rob is very excited about is taking his concept of legacy gameplay. And I haven't even said what legacy gameplay is for the few people who don't know. Legacy gameplay is the notion that you sit down, you play a session of a game, and after that's over, the game is forever changed. It will never be the same again that the decisions you make, the consequences of your action, and the fellow player's actions physically changes the board, physically changes the cards, physically changes the dice, physically changes everything. So the game comes with a bunch of stickers and hidden compartments in the box and all this kind of stuff. And when you achieve certain things in the game, it makes you say, well, hey, you know what? You have to destroy this card. And you literally rip it up because the function it provided is forever lost. But it also says, open this secret compartment in the box. And suddenly new rules get added to the game. And so the game changes and evolves over time as you play it. And you and your fellow players make... You know, you, you make... Per, uh, it... it Oh, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So anyway, that's what the legacy thing is. So he loves it. He wants to continue experimenting with it. But he also apparently loves storytelling in games. Because the one thing I didn't realize about Seafall that is hugely important. Seafall is a, is a 4X-style game. It's set in the era of, of colonization, exploration. And as you play over the course of this game... You know, you've played a lot of 4X games where everybody starts out and they're going to you know, set sail and discover the new world and find islands and explore them and, and set up trading colonies and all that stuff. But in a normal 4X game, you, know, you play for a while and after it's all over... You put it all back up in the box. The, the, all the civilizations you discovered, the map you and your fellow players have built, all of it is lost. It's just, it gets lost forever. But in Seafall, it stays. The game keeps track of everything you've discovered, everything you have changed, every civilization you've supported, every civilization you've destroyed gets permanently written down. And the next time you play, you pick up where you left off. And the story continues. That's what makes Legacy so great, that the story continues from one game to another. It's absolutely amazing. But anyway, so that's what Pandemic Legacy does and Risk Legacy. But Seafall adds this really strong element of storytelling because the game comes with a storybook. It's a, you know, it's a book much like Tales of Arabian Nights or Agents of Smirsh, where when you achieve certain things in game, it says, go look on this page in the storybook. And somebody has to read you a little story snippet of what happened, and you have to make a decision. And that decision permanently changes the world. But what we found is, as we were making all these decisions and permanently changing the world, this interesting meta-story built up where, you know, even though event 
that happened to me early in the session has absolutely nothing to do with an event that happened to Stephanie late in the session. It feels like they're connected. It feels like you know the ancient curse that I uncovered when I found this island. When Stephanie found um, you know a uh, you know a, a mysterious skull in a cave. Oh my gosh, is it, does it have the same curse on it? No, it's just a bunch of random stuff. But it feels like it's part of an interwoven narrative. And you know, in that, that skull that she could have left alone, or she could have disturbed the skull, and of course she disturbed the skull, and of course that created untold um, you know, havoc, and it really kind of messed her up and stuff like that. But it created this big meta story that everybody, not just me and Stephanie, but everybody was involved with. And it was just absolutely amazing. Um, you know, while still at the same time being a really solid game of you know building up your fleet and you know building up your technology and you know exploring and finding more of the world, Seafall is going to be balls out amazing. I'm just going to tell you right here, and it breaks my heart that I've gotten to play it two times, so I've gotten to see the world kind of expand and evolve just a tiny bit. How, considered how it will evolve over time, and I want to do more, but it's not a two-player game, so Jen and I will never get to play it. But that's okay, because wow, I'm really glad I got to spend as much time with it as I did. So that was great, but I was not done with Rob Davio yet. Rob was also working on, uh, you know, demoing prototypes of another game he's working on. Now, this other one, Chronicles Origin, is uh, a co-design that he's working with Dirk Niemeyer. And to be fair, I believe Dirk, who was also the designer on the excellent Tesla versus Edison, and I think he, he's done several other designs as well. I think Chronicles Origin is really, for the most part, Dirk's design, and he is collaborating with Rob because Rob's kind of the industry expert on legacy elements, and so. Rob's come in to help with this civilization building game, which is phenomenal as well. I got to play the first session of this game. And here's the big picture. It's a civilization game that we you know we'll, we'll track the origin of man, you know, through prehistoric times, through antiquities, through the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, up to modern day, etc. etc. But normally a civilization game does all of that in one play session. Right? You know, and maybe you'll sit down for two or three or four or eat five or six hours, depending on which game it is, depending on whether you're playing the Golden Ages or Through the Ages or, heck, the original Civilization. Whichever it is, you'll play, and by the time you're done, you will have told the story of the evolution of humanity, and you and your fellow players will have made this world, and it'll be special, and it'll be lost forever. It's just gone. That is not the way Chronicles Origins worked, because Chronicles takes that anywhere from 2 to 10 hour civilization experience and turns it into a 100 hour civilization building experience spread not just across you know, multiple sessions but multiple games what you're going to do is you're going to go out as a player and buy Chronicles Origins. And now this is a standalone civilization game that really only focuses on the first chapter of the evolution of modern man the Stone Ages. The Actually, well, if I recall correctly, I believe it was set... Was it set in the Stone Age or the Copper Age? I forget exactly. Uh, again, it's a month ago now. But this game, um, really... In, in this game, it's a, it's a semi-cooperative game where all the players are running... Are, we're, we're all members of the same tribe. 
but one of us wants to become chief of the tribe. Um, so we're competing to see who will be the chief. When the, when the current chief dies of old age, one of us will be the chief. So we're all trying to do the best we can for the tribe so that we can be crowned the new chief. Fair enough. And it's a cooperative game because if, while we're competing and we all try to push our own agendas, we also have to make sure that we make smart decisions to ensure that the tribe itself does not collapse and, you know, and, and, be, and, you know, and, and get destroyed by competing you know, tribes in, in the area and all that stuff. So it's an interesting balance of competitive and cooperative, where you know, players, sometimes they can be a little selfish and try to pursue their own agendas. Sometimes they have to put that aside and you know, work for the greater good of the tribe. And I won't go too terribly much into the, you know, it, 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 was a, it was a game of resource management. There's three basic types of resources. What were they? They were knowledge and materials and, oh, I forget what the third one was. The third one was like, like, in, in, the get up and go or initiative or your willingness to actually make change. And then one was your smarts about being able to make change. And then one was the resources you need to make change. Those were the three resources you have, if I recall correctly. And players could really try and, have, try and monopolize on the... Or you could kind of spread out. You could be the master of one resource or another. And you had objectives of, okay, I want to make sure we're really, really strong in this or that or the other thing so that I can score my victory points so I can be the chief. So it was a cool game. And we had a fun time playing it. And an interesting thing is, in addition to all this civilization resource management, semi-cooperative stuff, I would assume this is a Rob Davio influence. There was also a very strong storytelling element of the game because this game, like Seafall, came with a big storybook where when you did certain things, when you would go out and explore with your stone man, cave, caveman, um, and, you know, and try to find out what's in the surrounding area to, to make your tribe bigger and more successful or make discoveries and stuff like that, it would say... Go check page 37, chapter 13, and read it and make a decision. And so it's interesting. This is uh, this storytelling decision-making stuff, like Tales of Arabian Nights, but that the, the, the decisions have real lasting impact. They change the world forever is a really big deal. So it was a cool game. We had a fun time. It was really strange, too, because of the situation that I found myself in. I ended up being the jerk of the uh, tribe, even though normally I want to be a Care Bear, the game kind of pushed me into a thing where I was being very, very selfish and leveraging other people. Now, I talked some about this in the, the Gen Con run-through, so you can see a little bit more and you can see what it looks like. And I sat down with Elad from Golden Age Games, and again, I played with Stephanie Straw. Uh, she, again, a delight. Lovely, fun girl to play with. I would love to play games with her again. But anyway... So it was a very fun game, very cool. Um, but here's how the legacy element works. So you sit down and you play, right? And at the end of it, somebody won. Somebody has become the new chief. And the tribe itself has a very distinct, unique flavor. You know, it might be a very aggressive tribe that is really smart. Or it might be a stupid tribe that has been very fruitful and multiplied, so it has lots of members. Or it might be a tribe with rich, bountiful resources, so they can be lazy because everything just falls in their laps. Whatever it is, in addition to there being a satisfying standalone game, you as a group have created a distinct and a unique tribe. And that's cool. And then you play the game again. And um, you know, it's a totally standalone game. And you make a completely different tribe with a completely different set of attributes. And the intent is, you could play this game forever. But the goal is, you play it eight specific times, and you will have created... I think, and now I, this is a long time ago, so I might be getting numbers wrong. And of course, all this is subject to change, because this is all prototype. But you play it eight times, and I think you could keep playing afterwards. But the first eight times you play, you have created eight 
completely distinct, unique tribes. Okay, now what you do is you buy the next game in the Chronicles series. And if this game was set in the Stone Age, the next game is set in the uh, Copper Age. Or the Iron Age, that's what it was, yeah. Stone Age is the first game, Iron Age is the second game. And you could go out and just buy Chronicles of the Iron Age, whatever its name will be, as a standalone game. And this game is a competitive game where um, a bunch of different tribes are all competing to try to grow to basically become the ancient Rome of the world, to, to become you know, the one big nation that takes over the world. That's in the second game, the Iron Age game, what everybody's trying to do. And if you just went out and bought this game, the game would show you, oh, look, here's how you can create some random tribes and, you, and, you, and you'll all just play all these tribes. But that's not cool, because what's really cool is if you had bought the previous if you bought Chronicles War, Origin, you and your group of players have made eight very special, unique tribes. And then in the next game, you take those tribes and pit them against each other to see which one is the strongest and which will effectively become the ancient Rome of antiquities of this world. And so, and and you know, and it plays completely different, a completely different set of rules. I don't think it's a semi-co-op. I think it's a full-on competitive, um, you know. Area control, kind of light warfare style game, I think. Then the third game comes out, which is going to be um, you know, kind of a Roman era game because after you have played a series of the Iron Age games, you know, and you know, it's it's kind of like a knockout bracket. Eventually, all eight of those tribes will go up against each other, and there can be only one. And one of the eight tribes you created in the first game, the second game will allow it to reign supreme and become ancient Rome. And of course, it will be completely unique. And if I were to play this game a bunch of times, our ancient Rome would be completely different from your group's ancient Rome. And then that's where the third game comes in. And if I recall correctly, again, this is getting far into the future, the third game is going to be a game of politics in ancient Rome. But the world is not just some preset one. It's a world that your group has made. And your group, by this point, has probably spent 50-some hours charting the evolution from Stone Age, um, simple tribes, to you know the Iron Age, all these tribes warring against each other, and now you're in the ancient Roman times, playing you know ancient Roman politics and et tu brute type stuff. And after that's over, you'll move on to the next game. And so each one of these games, you play for 10 or 20 hours. And by the time you're done, and you, you finish the modern day game, and who knows what the gameplay will be like there, because you're getting far off into the future, you will have, play, you will have built a civilization that took you, I, I think at one point Rob said it took you, you know, they're trying to take the five or ten hour experience of a civilization game and make it last a hundred hours. And that's amazing. That is insanely ambitious. That is something that has never been attempted before. I mean, video games can't touch this, other board games can't touch this. So, and you know, and it's something that Dirk and Rob will be working on, I don't know, for years to come, I guess, as this Chronicles Origin series, Chronicle series keeps on coming out from Artana Games. Looks absolutely amazing. And like I said, all that aside, I got to play it in Chronicles Origins was fun. It was just a fun game in and of itself. Even if you don't want to buy into that whole, oh, you're going to make permanent changes and you're going to buy this series of games and you're going to play this for over 100 hours and, you know, and all. even if you don't buy into that, just the standalone game is fun. And hopefully, you know, I mean, Tesla versus Edison was fun, so hopefully Dirk's other games, you know, as the, as the, or, the Chronicles series continues, hopefully all of them will be fun as well. I just got to say, 
I was floored. I was blown away by this. And I mean, everybody's just got to pay attention to this. Moving forward in years to come, you know, when people have put in 50 or 70 hours and, you know, and they can remember. Because the other thing, too, the chronicles in the name means that something, something that happened all the way back in the Stone Age, 50 hours ago, will affect you in the Middle Ages. Because you write a chronicle that tells the story of the evolution of man. You know, like, and in the game we played, I remember there was a very specific moment where I went out and I explored. Um, you know, and I had a specific thing I wanted to do, but I came across a group, you know, a, a kind of a ragtag group of, um, you know, other Stone Age people, and they had been, um, you know, their village had been destroyed, and they were the only survivors, and they were looking for help. They were looking for somebody to take in, and I had to make the choice: Do we take these people in? You know, and, and show them hospitality because that will be a huge drain on our resources. Or do I turn them away, knowing full well that they will probably die? You know, because it's a harsh, unforgiving world. And I had to make that choice. Nobody else could make that choice because remember, this first game is a semi-cooperative game, and. I could make that choice in one of two ways. I could make it based solely on theme and what is the right thing to do, or I could make it on what's the right thing for me, because I'm still trying to pursue my own agenda of becoming chief and winning the game. And like I said, this would never be what I would normally choose, because I'm a Care Bear, but I figured, you know what, what the heck, what, win in Dallas, go crazy, and I did the antithesis of what I would do. Um, I turned them away. I sentenced them to death for all intents and purposes. And, you know, as a result, I got some bonuses and, you know, it affected the evolution of our tribe. And our tribe became known for being, I think it was brutal or vicious. I think our tribe became known as vicious. And, of course, that was one of the eight tribes that the game was going to create. And then we go into the next game, and if that is the tribe that survives through the Iron Age and becomes... That means that choice I made would affect the world when it becomes an ancient Roman city. Um, you know, that vicious choice I made affects things you know, far into the future. And that's amazing. And that's what Chronicles Origins provides. It's like the ultimate expression of what Rob is trying to do with legacy games. Games where, once you put it back in the box, the game lives on. It's amazing. It's the future of board games. I'm so excited. It's why everybody is going gaga. Because imagine all these cool things where the world changes and evolves based on what you do. That's what Pandemic Legacy does. That's why it's blowing up in popularity. That's why everybody's saying it's a perfect 10, the greatest game they've ever played. I will say that as well, by the way. It is, I'm not going to say it's the best game I've ever played, but it is the best game experience I've ever had. Legacy gaming is phenomenal. I'm absolutely in love with it. And so I was so excited. I was so happy. It was worth all that trouble I had in the Moscow airport and all that, and losing my luggage um, you know, and all that stuff to get to play these games with Rob and Matt and Dirk. And, um, and, you know, and, and I had a great time playing the action phase games, too. And I had a great time playing um, Tom Green's roller derby game as well. So I had a fun, fun time playing all these prototypes. Alrighty, But let's continue on. Oh, whoops. If I were to go back to the travel, long story short, when I eventually made it to Dallas, turns out my luggage never left Moscow. And I was really worried about that. Sorry, I'm having to change subjects and go back to the travel portion of the show. Um, 
When I found out I didn't have any, I contacted the airline. They said, oh gosh, don't worry, sir, we'll look into it. I was really worried because that luggage was full of all the games that I had arranged to trade or sell. Um, you know, and uh, if all that stuff disappeared, I would have been losing like seven or $800 worth of games. And so I was really terrified. It eventually did show up, and I was so thankful that I had Tom, you know, because he was able to, you know, help me get all those games to the show and all that. But sorry, that was back to the travel. Let's continue, though, to talk about games. You know what? Let's continue to talk about right after I take a break, because my throat is sore and I need some water. So I'll be back in just a mo, everybody. Okay, welcome back. Let's keep going. So that's all the prototypes I played at BGGCon. What else did I play? Well, it's interesting. I didn't play that much, other than these prototypes. You know, you're supposed to go there, you're, you're supposed to go to the library, find a game you want to play, get out your little flag, go out to the main room, put your flag up saying, hey, I want to play this game, and soon people will appear, you'll end up playing a game, you'll have a great time. Or if you don't want to do that, you go over to the hot game section where there's games going all the time, you jump down, there's people set up ready to, to teach you the, all the latest, hottest games. I never did any of this stuff. What I did do on one day, though, I had one kind of BGG.com standard experience. Early in the morning, I met up with Isaac, who, again, is the designer of Gloomhaven and Forge War, and his wife. And I'm so sorry. I'm pretty sure it was Christine. It's been a month. Um, you know, and they were lovely folks. And, you know, and they were looking for, hey, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And they said, well, hey, let's go to the, let's go to the library. Let's play a game. This is the way it's supposed to work. So we went to the library, and on that day, I played three standard, commercially readily available games with um, Isaac and his wife, and had a great time. And we played them in different rooms. We tried out the different. We tried playing in the big room. We tried playing in one of the little side rooms. So I got to experience some more stuff because I wanted to get an impression. The games themselves were Hide, or more to the point, H I D E, because it's an acronym for I forget what, but um, Fuse and Skyliners. And I wanted to play all of these because they didn't really strike me as games I would normally get to play. Hide was kind of a cool game. It was a deduction game where um, you are using custom dice. Everybody is a spy. And let's see, I'm trying to remember it now because, again, it's been a month. And maybe we're together, maybe we're not. No, 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 are we all trying to assassinate each other? Oh, goodness. How did this work? I remember, basically, we roll dice, and we play those dice to either make assassination attempts on other people. Oh, that's right, yeah, because we set one die aside, and that's kind of like our target. Oh, crap. I'm sorry. I don't really remember how it works now. I probably should have looked it up before I started filming. I thought it would just come back to me. I had a good, we had a good time with it. It was a, it was a pretty interesting game, um, you know, with, with a lot of twists and turns and trying to figure out. That's what it was. Yeah, there's, oh, there's identity cards. And everybody's trying to figure out what the identity is because when you make an assassination, you have to kind of, um, you know, take your best guess at who the other person is. And if you fail, you reveal something about yourself. And then it's easier for other people to assassinate you. But, you know, even if you assassinate and fail, you're building up strength so that you could potentially win the final shootout, but that's only if you don't get assassinated yourself. And eventually, when there's only one spy left standing, they score a point and you move on to the next round, and it's like a best of three rounds. I mean, that's dimly what I recall, and it worked pretty well. It was a three-player minimum game, and I was just interested to try it because you know, it had pretty simple rules, and we all enjoyed it. You know, I, I, I didn't want to run right out and buy it, but I, I would happily play it again now that I understand how to play. It was nice. So there was that one. We also played Skyliners from Z-Man Games. And I wanted to play this one 
because I knew, even though it supports two players, playing it as a two-player game defeats the purpose of it. It's a city-building game. And everybody has a particular... Everybody has goals of what they... Well, no, that's not exactly right. So we're building a city, and we're actually physically building the city. We have these little colored building blocks, and we build them vertically. So it was very satisfying to see the building. We're making skyscrapers, because it's Skyliners. We're all making skyscrapers, and the board just builds up higher and higher and higher. I mean, by the time it's over, gosh, it must have been like... The, you know, these skyscrapers must have been getting close to 10 inches tall. Um, you know, and they're, they're built sturdy, so they're not going to fall over anything. It's not a dexterity game at all. But we're trying to targetly build these skyscrapers. But in addition to trying to build these skyscrapers, we're also trying to take bets as to what, how we think the secret bets about how we think the city is going to evolve. So I might try to bet that from my perspective, because I'm, I'm sitting at the south end of the table looking north, so from my perspective, I'm trying to... I take a bet that the third column, I'm going to be able to see three buildings from my perspective. And that means that there's a, a short building, a medium-height building, and a tall building, so that I can see all three of them. And I might also take a bet that in the the leftmost column, I can only see one building, which means I want to make sure there's a really, really tall building that blocks my view of other buildings from my perspective. And while I'm taking these bets about how the board is going to evolve from my perspective, the other players who are sitting at the north side and the east side and the west side, they're taking bets about how it's going to evolve from their perspective. Now, we all make these bets in secret. But as we make choices about how we're trying to make the city build, we can take educated guesses about what other people are trying to achieve. Um, And so we can make the skyscrapers build in such a way that it helps us achieve our goals while thwarting the goals of everybody else. And I just got to say, it was a very clever game. And we all enjoyed it immensely, all three of us. If we'd had time, we would have happily played it again. Um, Because it was a pretty quick playing game. It worked really nicely. It was a fun little brain puzzler. It had a very striking presence as you build these skyscrapers taller and taller and taller. And you try to guess what it is you think everybody else is doing. And it, it just worked fantastically. Really, now, but again, I don't think it would be that great with two. Because so much of the game is about, all right, I've got what I'm trying to do, but oh my gosh, you're trying to do what you're trying to do, and the person to my right of me is trying to do what they're trying to do, and it can just change everything up. When there's only one other player, there's just not going to be that much of a confounding factor. And um, and if anything, I think it would become much more brutal and cutthroat because you can focus solely on trying to destroy the other opponent. Where with the more players you have, it becomes less about trying to destroy other people and just trying to scratch out what you need to get done. So I don't think I'd want to play it as a two-player game. I imagine it would work, but it really needs to be played with more. So that was Skyliners, which, again, I very much enjoyed, and I was very happy to have gotten a chance to play it the correct way. And then the last game I played with, um, with, with Isaac and Christine, and actually, Tom Green showed up again. I, I kept running into him over and over again. Um, <clears throat> we played, all four of us played a game, of Fuse. And now this was the second day of the show, and Fuse had not caught on yet. I think over the course of the five days, more and more people discovered Fuse. And Fuse became one of the surprise hits of the show. Um, you know, Because on that second day, I think they had two copies of Fuse in the library, and it was always easy to get. But actually, what I wanted to do is, I, we liked it so much. We played it five times, the four of us. Four or five times we played it. We enjoyed it so much. I was intent on going back to the library 
library later and grabbing a copy and filming a run-through of it at the show because I enjoyed it so much. But I could never get it again. It was always gone because more and more people found out about it and, more, and so people were always grabbing it from the library. What is it? It is a real-time cooperative game of defusing bombs. And you do it by... Um, roll, by it's a, it, not only is it a real-time cooperative game of defusing bombs, but it is a dice-drafting game. And I have recently noticed dice-drafting might be fast becoming my absolute favorite board game mechanism of all time. Replacing... Um, card hand management like what you see in Race for the Galaxy, where if you want to play one card, you have to discard other cards. That's always been my favorite mechanism, but I think dice drafting might eclipse whatever you call that kind of card hand management. Because it just works so well. You roll a pool of dice, and then everybody wants to get the dice they need. And I, so I, now I've played Signore, I've played um, Panamax, I've played... Uh, Grand Austria Hotel, I've played Fuse, and I know I've played, I've played Agricola, the dice game. I've played a bunch of dice drafting games, and it just always works so well. And there's so many interesting twists. So Fuse has an interesting twist on it, in that it's real time. And we are all... We all have our own bomb in front of us that we need to defuse by grabbing certain dice in certain patterns and stacking them or putting them next to each other and doing very simple little puzzly things. But what happens is every round, we roll the dice. There's enough dice for everybody to grab one. But as the game goes on and our bombs, each of our personal bombs gets more and more complex, there aren't going to be enough dice of the right type. And so you have to make decisions in real time. Right, I really need that black six. If I don't get it, it's going to really blow us up in the face. But Christine needs it too. Right, okay, we both can't take it, and if one of us doesn't take it, the other one's bomb is going to get set back, and that could set everybody back. So in real time, you're having to decide who doesn't get the piece they need, who, who makes the sacrifice. And I just got to say, it's brilliant. And honestly, I think it would work very, very well as a two-player game. I do hope to get a chance to play it as a two-player game. I really need to contact the publisher and see if they'll send me a copy, a review copy out here to Malta. Because, man, I loved it as a four-player game. Like I said, as a group, it's just it's addictive. I mean, it only takes about 10 minutes because it's real time. And after you're done, you just want to play it again. And after you're done, you just want to play it again. You want to do better and better and better. And we loved it. All of us loved it. Fuse. Heck... Ah, uh, how would I rank it? I can't rank it. I would. L I wish I could play it right now with Jen as a two-player game, because I mean, I think if it, if I have as much fun with it as a two-player game as I had it with a four-player game, it might make my top ten games of the year. It really, really might. It was so good. But I don't have a copy of it here, and there's no way I could get a copy in time because spoiler alert: on December twenty-fifth, on Christmas Day, I'll be putting out my top ten games of the year. So. That'll have to be a caveat. Fuse might make my top ten. Because actually, don't worry. I mean, I'm going to be doing one. I'm going to do a preliminary top ten on in on December 25th. I'll do a final top ten probably in April of 2016. Because by then, I will have played everything that 2015 had to offer, and I'll know if Fuse makes my top ten or not. But I just got to say right now, Fuse was absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely loved it. And, and so did everybody else I played it with. And I, so did everybody else at the show. Because like I said, as time went on, more and more people were playing it. More and more people were talking about it. So, those were the three commercial games I played. I did play some other stuff as well. I guess, actually, think about it. I'm getting back to prototypes. Um, what else did I play? I played um, the Ninth World Numera, uh, uh, Numerera. And I got to play it with Undead Viking, you know, Lance uh, Meister, and, uh, and um, Tox. 
Scott of, you know, uh, you know, Crits Happen Games, you know, Mr. Arcane Wonders, although I guess he's left Arcane Wonders now. That was really surprising. So the three of us sat down and we played a prototype of the Ninth World, and it's set in the Numeri universe, which I guess is a very popular RPG universe, and it was a pretty cool game. It was a auction game where every round, a series of auctions to grab different... It was a deck-building game, and you use your deck in a series of auctions to be able to get more cards to add to your deck so that you can win future auctions. Um, set in this future world, and all the cards you're getting had, you know, thema- it was a very thematically grounded game, and it was a good, solid game, and I think we all enjoyed it. Um, so I don't have much more to say about it. We only just played it once, and uh, it was with the designer as well. So we were actually playing a four-player game. So... I don't really want to comment because, honestly, I don't care if it's a good four-player game or not. I really care if it's a good two-player game. And so it's something I would, wouldn't mind trying with Jen because I think it could work as a two-player game. So but that's all i got to say about Ninth World Numera, uh, Numenera. I also played um, qua- uh, yeah, uh, Quadropolis or Quadropolis from Days of Wonder, and they actually wanted me to play it as a four-player game. And I said, please, 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 can I just play it as a two-player game? And so they actually let me. I sat down and played with one of the one of the art directors from Days of Wonder, and um, oh my gosh, this game is so good, you guys! It's absolutely stellar. Um, it instantly rocketed to one of my must-have games for 2016. Uh, you know, it's, you know, Days of Wonder they put out one big game a year, and this is going to be their big game of next year. And the interesting thing is, normally they always put out you know these very kind of gateway-ish, family-friendly games. But this is definitely this is a gateway plus game. This is not something that you would bring out to somebody who just said, "Hey, take a ride is cool. What else do you got?" Because it is definitely a next step game. But oh my gosh, it's so good! It has a a gorgeous presentation, like all Days of Wonders game. It's a city building game, and um, it's just a really lovely puzzle of a game. The way that you grab the tiles that you're going to use to build this city and you know and you're trying to figure out what are the best tiles for you to build to score the most points at the end of the game and you're paying attention to what your opponent's doing, it's just so so clever. And you know, it's really a game that's hard to describe. It's better to show it the way this intricate clockwork puzzle works. So I'm not going to go into it. All I'm going to say is I'm just calling it right now. It is one of my early picks for top ten of 2016. It was so good. As he was, as this, this, uh, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. He was a, a very nice French man. We had a wonderful time playing. As he's sitting down describing the rules to me, I am just grinning from ear to saying, "Oh my God, is that how that works? Oh my gosh, that's perfect. Of course, this works this way." And you know, it just, it just seemed like a perfectly, brilliantly elegant design. And I can't wait to play it for reals. That's Quadropolis. Or Quadrupolis, I'm not quite sure, from Days of Wonder. It'll be coming out early 2016. Let's see. I also played The Opulent, which I didn't finish a full game. I played a few rounds. And this is an interesting game. It's going to go on Kickstarter in early 2016. It is a cooperative game where everybody is working together to try to run the best speakeasy at the height of the American Prohibition era. We are not gangsters. We're not bad people. We're just trying to, you know, entertain people. We're, you know, we're not, you know, sure we're breaking the law, but we're not breaking legs or doing anything kind of nasty. Although we do have to deal with gangsters who might try to muscle in on our turf, but we ourselves are not gangsters. So right off the bat, that was the first thing I really, really liked about this game. That is, I know Jen's going to enjoy it more because it's a cooperative game where everybody's working together. 
And it's a cooperative game where we're actually trying to juggle resources and build the best speakeasy we can. And I think that's actually really brilliant because normally cooperative games are always about some kind of external force that's trying to destroy everybody and we just have to work together as a band of brave somethings and stop the bad thing from happening. That is just the standard or find the thing before time runs out. That's the way co-op games always work, but that's not how this game works. In this game, one person plays the bouncer. One person plays the bartender. One person plays um, the band leader, and one person plays the, the manager of the speakeasy. Each player has a completely unique little mini-game that they are playing. And um, with different rules, different requirements, but all these mini-games are intertwined together because the bouncer's job, his job is to manage the queue outside of the speakeasy and make sure the right people get in. Because the bartender's job is to mix drinks, and the band leader's job is to you know play music and um, you know get really good music playing that's going to get everybody out on the dance floor and have a really great time. While the bartender tries to make the best drinks so that makes sure everybody's happy and you know spending their money. And so while those two guys are inside trying to entertain anybody, I'm the one if I'm the bar- the, the the doorman who has to get the right people in and direct them to the right place because I have to be aware of. What types of drinks the bartender can make? What types of music the um, the you know the songkeeper can play? And you know the the band leader, you know they've got this whole different mini game that isn't about managing a queue of people there, and you know and, and and you know and 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 all that. Their job is all about actually they've got this kind of little music game where they've got musical notes so they're trying to to mix and match to make sure they've got good sheet music so they can play the right type of music. But they want to play the right type of music that entertains certain types of people. Because there's different types of people. There are politicians, and there are um, celebrities, and there are gangsters, and there's different ty- different classes of people who like different types of entertainment. So you got to figure out, well, based on who's in the speakeasy, based on who the... The, uh, the doorman let in, what type of music am I going to play? Can I play this type of music, or am I going to hit sour notes? Um, because as long as I play the right music, they'll keep dancing. And the more they dance, the more thirsty they get. And then that's when they want to go over to the bartender and get a drink. And meanwhile, the bartender, they are playing their own separate game of trying to mix all the... Di- you'll make all kinds of different cocktails by mixing different ingredients for the right type of person so that, th- so that we can make money by selling drinks. Because that's why the whole thing exists. So they've got their own game that intermeshes. And then the fourth player, the, the, uh, the, the general manager, they, they've got a special game where they can use resources to kind of jump in and help anybody out with their other stuff. So in a perfect world, you're playing this as a four-player game, and everybody has their own job. Everybody has to pay attention to what everybody else is doing, and everybody has to work in concert. And the game itself comes with a whole bunch of different scenarios that represent all the different years of Prohibition, the early days of Prohibition to the late days of Prohibition, with all these different setups that you have to kind of beat in a cooperative setting. It looks phenomenal. And I absolutely fell in love with the idea. Now, if you're going to play a two-player game, um, all four roles are still there, but like one player plays as the doorman and the manager, and the other player plays and you know, has the responsibility of juggling two things. So 
in some ways, it's very, very much like Fantasy Flight's XCOM, which I've done a run-through for if you want to see that, where everybody has their own asymmetric game they're playing. But XCOM makes it an interesting, challenging, cooperative game because everybody has a simple minigame they're playing, but it's all in real time, and everybody has limited resources. Everybody's trying to fight for the same resources. This is not a real-time game. Everybody can actually talk about what they're doing and what their plans are. And so, I think it's a very, very interesting game. Now, my only concern about this game is the minigames themselves are very simple, much like XCOM. And I mentioned to him that what would make the game a lot better is the way they had the game set up and the way I played it with them, everything is open information. Everybody has perfect information about what everybody else is trying to do. And so, again, as the doorman, I know exactly what the bartender needs. I know exactly what the band leader needs. And so, I can make very smart decisions. And quite frankly, I was worried the game is going to be a little bit on the easy side. Um, but when I was talking about it, I just suggested, hey, why isn't it fact... Because you know, we have these really big player aids, and if you just flip the player, player aid up and turn it into a shield, then suddenly, I'm outside the bar. And I can't see what all the ingredients the bartender has is. And I don't know what all the notes are that the band member can play. And I don't know what all the options are. But I can... And and, and nobody knows exactly who's outside of the speakeasy except for me. And suddenly, just by hiding that information, it came alive. It was just like... Just like instantly flipped a switch and suddenly the game became really kind of cool and very interesting because now players really have to communicate and they have to talk to each other. They can't just... You can't have an alpha game where one person just looks at the table and decides what's the best thing to do. Although it's interesting, the, uh, the manager, that's basically his job is to basically look at what everything is and tell everybody else what to do if you have an alpha gamer. So it was interesting. I suggested this. They really liked the idea. They said they were going to go back and play test it. I hope it makes it, because I think that one little thing of not having perfect information about what everybody's going to do is going to turn this from an interesting game into an exceptional game. And, I, and they're going to send me a prototype so I can do a run-through for the Kickstarter when it goes in like February, or maybe it was January, I forget. I'm really looking forward to seeing the final thing, because it looked gorgeous, had really wonderful production quality, and I'm very excited about the opulent. Let's see. What else did I play? Um, oh, I also played... I don't remember the name of it. I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find it. It was this weird little Asian... I don't know if it was a Japanese game or a Korean game. Um, and it was about everybody running a Hollywood studio, trying to get the right movie stars to match the right genres so you can film scenes. I can't remember the name of it, sorry. I thought it was just kind of an... And, eh, it was kind of an okay game. I didn't really have a great time with it, but what was nice is I got to play it with Z Garcia and Jason Levine from the Dice Tower and also my, you know, legendary game designer Mike Fitzgerald. And... That was actually really fun. I, I enjoyed getting to sit down and, you know, because I've, I've watched Dice Tower videos all the time. Um, you know, so it was really nice to get to sit down and play with Jason and, um, and Z. And also to uh, play with Mike and a, and a friend of Mike's. I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. Because that's right, we did play a five-player game, didn't we? Yes, we did. I don't, I don't remember the fifth guy. I think he was a friend of Mike's, if I recall correctly. Oh, it's all blurring together now. But you know, Mike was a very charming gentleman. He was very funny and entertaining. And and you know, while the game itself is just so-so, that's another great thing about BGG Con is meeting people and playing with them. And and I had a great time, even though the game itself wasn't great. 
the company was great. Um, you know, Z taught the game, even though he had just read the rules seconds ago. He did a really great job of, sh- of shepherding us all through the game. Jason won. Actually, it looked like for almost the entire game that I was going to win. But then, right at the last second, somehow Jason swooped in and, and smoked us all. Um, because that's what I've heard Jason does. And uh, that was really nice, too. So that was quite nice. I wish I could remember the name of it. Um, if somebody hears this... And, you know, that, for my brief description, it sounds familiar. Let me know, and I'll update the show notes down below to say what the game is. But anyway, those were the games. I think that is everything I played at BGG.com. So that was kind of a, hey, Rich, hey, Rado, what have you been playing lately Um, uh, with the BGGCon? But you know what? I'm not done yet because my trip was not done. After BGGCon was over, I flew up to Seattle, and I spent two weeks there with my mom. And while I was there, I got to play a few more games. And uh, because I met up with two different game groups for the two weeks, I was in Washington State. So I should definitely talk about that, but you know what? I need to take another break, folks, because I've been going on for quite a while. So I'll be back in just a minute to continue with my uh, Pacific Northwest Adventures. Talk to you soon. Phew, it's a good thing I ended right about there because Jen had apparently been waiting for five minutes to be able to blow dry her hair. So she was very happy to do that. And while she was doing that, I just took a look at how much I filmed and not filmed, recorded. And oh my goodness, this is just going on forever. And it also gave me pause to stop and think a bit more. I totally forgot there was one more thing I wanted to talk about Board Game Geek Con that I haven't already talked about in my run through and I haven't already talked about in this podcast so far. And that wasn't the games, that wasn't the events, wasn't the location, it was the people. I met a lot of really lovely people, and I think more than the games, more than the, the delicious junk food, more than anything, my favorite part of the show was getting to hang out with a bunch of really cool geeks. And so I figured I'd spend a little bit, I've already mentioned a few, I mean my breakfast with uh, Matt Leacock was lovely. I was absolutely happy to do it, except for the fact that he's a very, very quiet talker. But other than that, great, great time. And, you know, obviously I got to spend a fair bit of time with Rob Davio since I played two of his prototypes. So he's a really funny guy and very, very interesting and very sharp. The uh, designer of Gloomhaven and... Forge War... Isaac Childress and his wife, and again, I think it's Christine Childress, they were a hoot. Obviously, I played several games with them, had a great time. (laughs) Travis and Nick from Action Phase Games are hilarious. Travis is one of the funniest guys alive. I mean, he could be a stand-up comedian. It's just so entertaining to be around, and really, really nice, warm, honest, genuine people as well, even though he has this kind of... Um, fast-talking, uh, wise-cracking, sarcastic exterior. Uh, he's actually a really, really nice guy. So I enjoyed hanging around with them for a while. Um, speaking of warm-hearted, probably more than anybody else except for Tom Green. And Tom Green and his wife, they were wonderful people too, gracious hosts, uh, very funny, etc., etc. But 
I, probably more than anybody else except for Tom, I ran into Lance, Undead Viking Mikester, quite a few times. And uh, like in the past at Gen Con, I ended up spending quite a bit of time just chatting with him. In part because both Lance and I were VIP guests of the show. So we had to do a couple of specific events. There was a Q&A th- panel and we had to... You know, I shouldn't say had to because we definitely enjoyed the Q&A panel and we definitely enjoyed the trivia tournament that we partook in as you know guest celebrity appearance and stuff like that. So we ended up hanging around quite a bit together. And God, what a great guy. Um, you, know, you know, just again, very, very uh, sweet-natured, warm-hearted. I know a lot of people have maybe a... A wrong impression of him. If you ever watched Album, I know some people come away from seeing some of his stuff and think, well, he's just kind of arrogant or a jerk or something like that. But, oh man, nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, he is truly humble. That's just, whenever he's joking about, you know, people he knows or whatnot, he is just joking around. It's just his sense of humor. But the guy himself is just, you know, just a big, sweethearted, you know, a lovable teddy bear of a man, and you know who loves his family. And uh, oh my God, I mean, the guy made me cry—not once, but twice. Telling, I mean, I, he's just so entertaining. He tells such great, wonderful stories. And I, I told him about this because he, at one point, he's also so self-depreciating too. He, you give him, you spend more than five minutes with him. At some point or other, he'll point out how his show is crap, and he doesn't understand why anybody watches, you know, his his reviews and whatnot. And I keep pointing out to him. He's a really gifted storyteller, and I think the thing that makes his you know, Undead Viking videos special and different than anybody else's, it, he always thinks, oh, I was just the first guy who did long videos, and that's not what it is. He's the first guy, and as far as I know, really the only guy who consistently tells personal stories in his run-throughs. He, you know, he, he does more, or not run-throughs, his reviews. He does more than just give you the rules. He talks about his childhood. He talks about his family. He talks about his friends. He talks about his days playing uh, pen and paper adventures, and you know, he always brings a personal human touch to his videos that I absolutely love. And you know, and then you hang out with him in real life and it's that times a hundred because his life is an open book. He's again just very warm and gracious and you know God, schmaltzy. Schmaltzy as heck. Like I said, I mean the guy literally told a story that made me cry. Um, and then at one point, Joel Eddy, uh, we were, again, once again, we ran into each other, we were hanging around chatting, and Joel Eddy walked up and said, hey, so what's this I hear about you making Rado cry? And so then Lance starts to tell the story again, and I literally have to walk away, because he's going to make me cry again telling this story. And after I do, and I come back, Joel said, yeah, I, I shouldn't have had to tell that story. That's a, you know, that's a heartbreaking story. So, I mean, I've just... Great guy. I had a wonderful time hanging around with him. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to him a little bit again because I kind of had some interactions with him, interactions with him while I was in Seattle. But, let's see. So I, I had a great time hanging out with Lance. Just wonderful sweetheart of a guy. Um, you know, and I, I mentioned I met Z and Jason. Actually, the very first person I ran into, celebrity, at the show was Jason. We, um, we ran into, you know, on the first day before the show opened up, we both had, you know, behind-the-scene passes. So we were inside the hall somewhere and we just start chatting I talked to Jason for like an hour and I, you, know, you don't really get to know Jason very well from his moments on Dice Tower videos but you know he's a very cool guy I mean mostly I just spent the entire time talking to him about his job you know he's a professional graphics designer for you know major networks uh, you know he makes a 
he does very very well doing it and you know he I mean, he does like Super Bowl t- halftime stuff and you know I remember he he was talking about working on you know what was it the the 2012 presidential election um, you know return results and making interactive maps for newscasters to use and and you know his his professional life actually really sounded quite a bit like my, similar to my professional life as a video game designer there was a lot of overlap and you know and you know you went into how he got the job it was never really his career path but he ended up you know you know based on his per, personal skill sets of you know he's technically strong but he's also very very creative as well which again it's not something you ever get from the dice tower so i had a great time talking with jason too and then we got to play a game with him later one thing that surprised me, and this would maybe surprise quite a few fans of the Dice Tower. At one point, I was walking by and I saw Dan King sitting down playing Raptor with Sam Healy. And I just sat down and just kind of hung out for a little while and chatted while they were playing. And Sam was teaching Dan how to play. And oh my God, Sam Healy is just about the warmest, friendliest, nicest person you're ever going to meet. It is a total 180 from his grumpy curmudgeon persona that he always trots out, um, you know, for, I guess, I mean, now that I've met him in person, comic effect, because he is just a sweetheart. um, You just, it's very, very hard not to instantly like him, because that's what I found myself doing. I expected him to be all, you know, normal, gruff, sarcastic, you know, know, I'm I'm an elite gamery. To, again, that persona he has, um, you know, when he, Sam, and, or no, he, Tom, and Z are going back and forth. But no, you, you get him away from the camera, and he's just a sweet, genuine, warm, lovely person. And I just found myself instantly saying, wow, you are one of the most instantly likable people I've ever met. Uh, I don't know if I actually told him that at the time, because that just would have been weird. But I'll say it now. I don't care if it's weird or not. Sam Healy, super nice guy. Uh, so that was actually cool. And let's see. Oh, well, you know, not just... I, I met people other than just board game reviewers, too. I mean, I mentioned Matt Leacock. I also ran into Tom Lehman, who I'd never met. And we ended up chatting in a hallway for quite a while. And, man, he just cracked me up, telling me stories about the development of of uh, Race for the Galaxy and working with Matt on the pandemic expansions. And, yeah, he was a really interesting guy. had a lot of really great stories. And, um, oh, oh, another one. Uh, over in the far back corner of the dealer hall, Cosmos was there because you know Cosmos is starting to make more of a you know a, an outreach, more having more of a presence in you know conventions and whatnot outside of Germany because traditionally Cosmos doesn't really seem to care about the non-German audience, and so Cosmos was there, and I sat down and said, "Well, say, hey, what's up with all this Cosmos starting to make English uh, translations of games? What's that all about?" And I ended up talking to them for must have been half hour, 45 minutes, because they're not Cosmos employees. Apparently, Cosmos, which is in Germany, this big, major book publishing company that also happens to dabble in games, by the way, but that's not where they make their money. They do, you know, textbooks and stuff like that. So um, they had a merger or they bought out a, an American, um, you know, edutainment company called. Thames something or other. And so all of the Cosmos gaming, you know, all the Legends of Andor stuff we're seeing to, to show up, I mean, you know, the, the fact that we're starting to see Cosmos games appear more readily in America isn't Cosmos, the mothership, doing it. It's this group of Americans who have merged with Cosmos and have discovered, you know, they, you know, they, they did, you know, 
entertainment education stuff, and that's why they merged with Cosmos. But then they said, hey, you've got this incredible la- uh, catalog of games. We don't know much about games, but oh my god, they're so much fun. And they became game fans, and now they're trying to spread the gospel and get these games brought over to America. It was really, really interesting hearing this behind these behind-the-scenes stories, and I really enjoyed that too. So I just wanted to mention, that's another very, very cool part of BGGCon that I didn't really talk much about elsewhere. The human connections, just getting sitting down and chatting, and I think more anything else, that's where I had my most fun at the show. And so, with that, I can now stop talking about the show and get another drink of water, and then I'll be back to talk about some more games in the Pacific Northwest. Hang on, everybody. Hey, everybody. Okay, let's get back to my whirlwind tour, my adventure in the U.S. After... Board Game, Geek, bah, Board Game Geek Con was over. I flew up to Washington State and was actually met at SeaTac Airport by Board Game Geek user Niall Design, wonderful woman named Shanda, who uh, actually was so delightful. She drove me all the way from SeaTac Airport out to where my mom lives in Belfair, which is not an insignificant drive at all. Now, to be fair, I was actually muling some games that I had picked up for her at Essen. So, you know, there was, it was mutual benefit, to be sure. But still, I was very, very happy to not have to worry about getting a tram and, and trying to take the ferry. And then Mom would have had to meet me in Bremerton instead of Belfair. So, Shanda, a big, huge thank you. But Shanda, uh, Board Game Geek user Nile Design, is not out of the store yet. We'll come back to her in a minute. So... I had scheduled two weeks to come out and visit my mom, um, which was really, really great because I haven't seen her for several years. And, you know, after my, you know, actually, I haven't been back for three years since I went back because my dad was losing his fight with cancer. And so, you know, mom's been on her own now for the really the first time in her adult life for a few years. And, you know, Jen and I, we've been trying to help out and give advice and stuff like that. But it was really good to spend a good, solid couple of weeks because she had just come through a fairly major health scare, like really extreme anemia, incredibly low. Is that anemia? That's right, the blood iron thing, right? Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, And, you know, so she'd spent some time in the hospital and had several blood transfusions and iron infusions and stuff like that. So she was still kind of on the mend from that. So it was good for me. It was good timing uh, that I was able to come out there and spend a few weeks she had also, 2015 was not mom's best year. I mean, it was a great year for us. We, Jen and I, we had a wonderful time. But mom, she had had this tenant in the house she rent. Oh my God, it was just infinite problems. So uh, it was good for me to come out and spend a couple weeks and help her get kind of her affairs in order. And she was still recovering from the health scare and whatnot. And I don't have to go into too much. Actually, I've probably gone into more detail than I should have already. I'm sure Jen is frowning at me around the corner while making a delicious pot roast I think we're having. Maybe it's pork chops. I don't know. I think there will be some swine flesh soon. I'm very excited about that also. It's some Thai-flavored what, honey pie? Uh, one of the, like, pork steaks? Apparently some Thai-flavored pork steaks, everybody. Uh, well, Thai-flavoring uh, pork steaks and cauliflower. And some delicious cauliflower, because have I mentioned we're paleo? I'm back home, so I'm all paleo. But man, while I was in the States, I just went crazy eating anything and everything I could find. Donuts and junk food and fast food. Oh my gosh, A&W root beer shakes are manna straight from heaven. They are the greatest things forever. A&W can never go out of business because they must continue making root beer shakes. Oh, But anyway, 
So uh, basically, the plan was spend a couple weeks with mom, you know, help her. Uh, you know, she doesn't do auto pay. She doesn't know how to do online banking. You know, trying, trying, teaching her how to use her Android phone. She was to the point where she was practically gonna just try to sell it to some local kid because she couldn't figure it out. So you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, she had recently gotten cable and didn't know how to turn on her cable or how to use her cable box and you know, these sorts of things. Her DVD player had died. So. It was a good solid two weeks. And you know, it's funny, originally, you know, Jennifer was thinking, wow, two weeks, that's a long time. What are we going to do for all that time? And I thought, no problem. You know what? I'm, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. That's going to be three weeks, including Board Game Geek. I'll just film some games while I'm out there. I knew I was going to pick some games up at BGG Con, and I did. I picked up and carried to Seattle. What did I pick up? Oh, uh, Seven Wonders Duel, and I had my copy of Motainai, and I was thinking, oh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll do some run-throughs of those when I'm not helping mom out with stuff. I'm going to be there for two weeks. And then, actually, there was another guy out in, um, not Port Orchard, in Silverdale, who actually volunteered his copy of Pillars of the Earth, because I know people have been wanting me to do a run-through forever of Pillars of the Earth, and I was going to do a run-through of that. And in fact, I had like Pillars of the Earth set up on Mom's kitchen table for three days waiting to film it. But somehow, helping Mom out with all the various things and with, with you know getting the cabin cleaned up and you know catching up with my brother I haven't seen for three years and all kinds of stuff, I just never had any time to film anything. And for that, I apologize. I had big plans, everybody. Big plans! And yet my plans came to naught. However, I did do a little bit of something um, board game related while I was in Belfair. One, I appeared on three post-BDG live online chat discussion groupy things. The first one was was uh, hosted by uh, Joel Eddy of Drive Through Review, and they were just kind of talking about their experiences at the show and um, you know because actually as a group they had all kind of stuck together and so you know they had a lot of you know telling oh remember about the when that happened to us and that happened to us so it was really kind of weird for me because I didn't have any of those experiences with them but I was able to point out some counter experiences and actually I talked at great length uh, in that show about the what do you call it the the escape room that uh, you are able to go to for free if you're at BGG Con, and you stand in line for a long time and get there super early. So, if people are interested to hear some more about BGG Con, I mean, I, I, I pipe up a few times in that. There'll be a link for that down in the show notes of this as well. And then I also did two appearances on Lance Meister's Undead Viking, Alaboom, which was a blast. That's a, a, sh- a live show that basically goes on for about three hours. So, if you're going to watch it, I definitely suggest watching it at double speed because... It's three hours of chit-chat, and maybe only an hour of it, at the most, is related to board games. The rest is just pop culture stuff, old TV shows, just a lot of joking around and whatnot. So I very much enjoyed that, too. But I did, in fact, play some games. Remember I mentioned Shanda, uh, Nile Design, who picked me up at the the airport? I actually scheduled a game day with her and her husband at their house, and... um, Went out there and had a wonderful time. What did we play? So I'm back to talking about games now, everybody. We played Nobleman, Pagoda, and the Abyss. 
Three games that I was unlikely to ever play, so I can talk about them a bit now. Let's talk about the order we played them. First, we played Nobleman, which is officially a game that uh, does not work for two players. Officially, the rules say three plus. And so I never even bothered picking up. I never really looked into it very much, but a few people have said, you know what? It's got really good two player variants. The designer, post shipping it, had come up with a good two player variant. So I thought, well, what the heck? I'll check it out. Maybe it'll be worth checking out as a two player game as well. And Shanda had a copy of it. They hadn't played it. So we all sat down and played all the way through. And I got to say, it was a very good, solid game. We all enjoyed it. Shanda cleaned our clocks, absolutely destroyed me and her husband. Oh, it was, it was not pretty. Um, you know, there was there was blood on the kitchen table there as uh, you know she raked in all the big points. It was, it was definitely enjoyable, but um, I definitely got. I could see why. It was officially not a two-player game, and I've read since. I've since now that I understand. It, I've read the two-player variant rules, and I could see how they would work. But I don't think the game would really capture what its essence is. I think it would lose too much to not have more than three players. So I don't know if I'm really going to seek it out. I mean, it, it, I can see it would work okay as a two-player game, but it would be one of those games where, yeah, I own it because I really enjoy it with more players, and every once in a while, if I need to, I'll play it as a two-player game. But I don't think I'd want to own it as a two-player game. But next up, um, we played Pagoda, just me and Shanda. And that was an interesting little game. Now, I'd never really been that interested in it because Jen and I tend to avoid abstract games, me especially. Jen will, like, tolerate abstract games, but I I'm, I'm just really don't have much time for them. But I'd seen good things about it, and um, you know, it looks like a really pretty game. It's, it's a game of building... Towers, building pagodas, three dimensions by laying out little, not cubes, but little cylinders and then putting tiles on top of them and building higher and higher and higher and trying to score points. And there's quite a bit of brinksmanship and uh, it's a two-player only game and it worked really nicely. Shanda won, but only because, well, because Shanda remembered the rules wrong and so she got one thing wrong that put me in a death spiral where I literally, I was winning for almost the entire game. It looked like I was going to destroy her, but then it got to a point where I completely stalled out and I spent like five or six turns in a row where I could literally do nothing. And it turns out afterward, that was because Shanda had remembered the rules wrong. There's a thing you can do that lets you like charge up a special ability meter and you can use these special abilities to kind of get yourself out of trouble. And Shanda remembered incorrectly that when you, when you earn the special ability, even though you have three charges of it, you only get one. And when, in fact, you're supposed to get all three charges, so you can use this special ability several times after you've earned it, but we were only getting it once and then using it, so the special abilities were almost never happening. And so that got me into a point where even though I had a ton of cards in my hand and I was drawing more cards, I could never do anything. And so we were both kind of bored as we just watched her slowly catch up and pass me as, you know, for the entire last act of the game, I could do nothing. It was, But it wasn't the game's fault, because I think if we had played correctly, one, I probably would have won because I was rickrolling her, definitely, in spite of the... But still, it, it was a neat game, and I could see maybe playing it again if I ever pick it up. But it still was a bit more abstract than I personally care for, but a neat little game. And then the last one we played was Abyss from designer Bruno Cathala. And you know, it came out the same year that Five Tribes did, and Five Tribes really kind of set the world on fire. And, you know, you know, everybody loved it, and it was very um, widely played. And it was also a very controversial game with the with the slave tiles and all of that. And of course, I was kind of stuck in the middle of that controversy. Is don't want to go down that road again. But anyway, so Five Tribes came out, and Abyss came out at the same time in the same year at Gen Con, and everybody said, "Well, that's really neat too," but it kind of just got forgotten very quickly. 
And I had always been curious to try it because it's a gorgeous looking game. It's basically set under the sea. And actually, much to Shanda's consternation, I spent almost the entire game, when it wasn't my turn, singing the lyrics, which I know by heart, to the Little Mermaids. Under the sea, under the sea. Uh, it was sweet here. We got the beat here. Naturally, naturally. Ooh, ooh. Even the sturgeon and the ray. They get the urge and start to play. You know, etc., etc. And um, Shanda's someone who likes it nice and quiet when she's thinking. So I think I kind of drove her a little bit nuts. Um, but we all had a good time. And I was surprised. The game is very good. The components are absolutely stunning. Goodly gorgeous. And those little pearls you have for money are really, really neat. But the reason I'd always stayed away from the game, I'd always been concerned because the game does have kind of a mean streak to it. About 20% of the cards in the game are very cutthroat, steal stuff from people, block them, prevent them from doing what they want to do, destroy their stuff. And that had always been reason enough for me to stay away. But I, you know, I, I knew it was a good game, so I wanted to try it, and I'm glad I did. And the interesting thing was, that was the game where I got my revenge because I destroyed both of them. You know, uh, you know, completely buried them in the dirt. And I did it by, by really focusing on the military, the red cards, and really working them over. Stealing their stuff, I got the one military card out that allowed me to minimize their hand size. So while I had a big, gigantic hand of cards for most of the game, they were just like really kind of hurting for certain and could never really catch up once I got in the lead. And yeah, I, I just devastated them. And the thing is... I felt terrible doing it. I hated doing it, but you know the way the game just kind of swung, the opportunities that came, that dropped into my lap that made the most sense for me to pursue were the red ones. And they kept saying, no, no, of course do it. It's totally fine. It's just a game. We don't mind. And so I, per, I commenced to absolutely destroy them and make their game miserable because they couldn't really achieve anything and it was hard for them to rub two sticks together while I was just drowning in cards. And it's interesting, the game has this very interesting mechanism where you put these cards out, they give you some kind of ongoing power. Like in the case of the ones I had, the most telling one was the one that limited their hand size. I think to five cards, I forget exactly, but something like that. But the game actively encourages you to um, basically retire those. Those cards represent allies you've made in this undersea fish kingdom. And... You to score big, big points at the end of the game, you do other things to claim like these big plots of undersea land, and then you move your allies out to them. They retire, and that's how you score the really big points, and you're encouraged to do that. But I, because those allies I had, the military allies, were keeping them so buttoned down, I bent over backwards to avoid ever losing my allies. And so, I, not only had I put the screws to them, but I spent the entire game continuing to screw tighter and tighter, and um, you'll get blood out of the two stones that they represented. And it was awful. Um, I thought the game was brilliant, and you know I'm glad I won, so I guess I had fun on some level, but I mean, I have to admit, I was just kind of miserable the whole time. And so I was singing songs and trying to keep it upbeat, but man, that game is just mean for no good reason. I just didn't understand why. Because everything else, the other four colors of the cards are all really cool, interesting powers that give you all kinds of cool ways to do it, but then they just drown you in all... I mean, depending on how the cards come out, somebody is going to be a real a-hole to everybody else. And that somebody was me, and I hated it. And it's a shame because, man, 
I liked the game a lot. It was so clever. It had so many really cool, smart mechanisms. And it was a really interesting puzzle how to build towards your final score. Because the way final scoring, I have to admit, was a bit fiddly and kind of hard to keep in our heads, but it was really smart. So I wanted to love this game because it was so well designed. But man... It was so mean, and it's just such a shame. I don't see that there's a way that you could remove all those mean cards, because you would be removing 20% of the cards of the game, and it would probably upset the balance for everything else, which is too bad, because Abyss is really, really good. But I'll be honest, I never want to see that game again. Because even though I won, I had a miserable time. And I, don't, and I think you know they were good sports about it, but I don't think they had a great time either, because attacky cards suck. They just do, and it's too bad, because Abyss deserves better. I wish the designers hadn't just fallen into the old trap of, oh, it's fun to beat your opponents into the dirt and steal everything and thwart all their best laid plans. No, it's not fun. It's absolutely horrible. And so that was too bad. But it was interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm glad I played it. So I had a fun day in, you know, in spite of the fact that I got rickrolled twice and then I got a win that made me feel dirty inside. But you know, they were wonderful people. Oh, and they made a wonderful Mexican dish, uh, uh, tacos, uh, carne asada. I forget what it was, but it was delicious. And then we had some ice cream. Oh my gosh, I had so much ice cream. Why is there no good ice cream in Malta? That's just I mean, you go you go to the grocery store here in Malta. You go over to the ice cream section, and there's like three flavors of Ben and Jerry's, and they cost literally nine dollars U.S. per tub per little tiny pint. Um, you know, because what are they? They're like six or seven euros, so that's like eight or nine dollars U.S. Um, and yeah, and so you can get your fish food, and you can get your Oh, gosh, your Cherry Garcia and maybe one specialty thing. And that's it. That's all you've got. And then you've got all these weird, really terrible brands that are just awful. And they're always frozen solid, so they're all crystally. They're not even ice cream. They're like... Oh, yeah. Jen and I, we would just go on. But so, man, I had so much ice cream. In fact, actually, if you watch those videos I was talking about, you know, Joel Eddie's one and the two albums, people got a big kick out of, I spent, literally, people watched me for an hour just eating, not pints, but quarts of ice cream on screen, because, um, you know, while I was at Mom's, we just went back to Safeway, and we tried every delicious, oh my god, the Safeway Select Pumpkin Pie was heaven. It was so good. It's probably out, because it's a seasonal thing, it's gone now, but Safeway Select Ice Cream is amazingly good. All the flavors I tried were really good, but man... What was it? Dryer's Butterfinger ice cream? Oh, it is to die for. Literally to die for. Oh, I miss it. And then I come back here and you've got overpriced, minimal... Uh, oh, well, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff to living in multitude. And, you know, it's probably just as well. If I lived in the States, I would be a whale. Um, you know, the fact that there aren't very many good ice cream choices probably helps me with uh, my impulse control issues when it comes to ice cream. So I can't complain, really. But anyway, so that was a nice game day. And then I had another nice day. You know, the time eventually came when I was going to leave and um, fly out. And I'll talk about my trip back in a second because that was insane. The trip out, the trip to Dallas was kind of a pain with losing my luggage and the, the you know, the, the pain in the butt in, in Russia and all that. But the trip back, oy, it was a nightmare. But we'll get to that in a second. <clears throat> my plan was mom drove me into Bremerton. I caught the ferry over to Seattle, which I've, I, you know, man, I, that was a nice install. I, I love taking the ferry from Bremerton to Seattle. You know, I, I went to high school in Belfair, and so every weekend I would go, I would take the ferry over to Seattle to go to Golden Age Comics in the Pike Place Public Market and buy all my comic books that I, um, you know, that I had the money for working part time as a dishwasher at a restaurant or delivering pizzas or whatever. 
I was a geek. Um, so it's I, I love riding the ferry. And now the ferry has Wi-Fi. Hooray! So that's even cooler. Oh, no, no, it did it. Did it. Yeah, it did. No, it didn't. It did, but it, they charged you. Ah, boo. Boo. But anyway, um, so a... Oh, what was her name? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. I cannot remember your name or your BGG name. I should have looked that up before I started filming. But I was picked up in Seattle by a very, very nice lady. Um, and I can't put annotations in. All right, while I'm talking, I will see if I can find the email from her where we arrange stuff. Um, let's see. Fairy. Let's see if I have a reference to my email for Fairy. You'd think I would just pause, wouldn't you? Because that would be smart. There's my emails with Shanda. Snow. All right. Ah, uh, I'll, I'll put a. I'll put her name in the show notes. A big, big thank you. Um, she and her husband, who are both avid board game geeks, they're both very active on Board Game Geek, and so she picked me up because totally coincidentally, the day I'm flying out of Seattle, her business. She works at a software. Uh, accounting software firm, they were having their first ever board game Friday where they all got to stop working early on Friday and they were all just going to sit around all day afternoon playing board games. And she said, oh my God, you have to come, you have to come. And like, because my original plan was just take the ferry over, go to Pike Place Market, get an apple fritter from Three Girls Bakery, maybe get a Dick's Deluxe if I could get to a Dick's Drive-In, maybe, you know, the one in Queen Anne Hill or the one on Capitol Hill or something like that. But then take the tram out to SeaTac, get on the airport and be done. Get on the airplane and be done. But she came out. She picked me up in downtown, which was tough because if you know downtown Seattle traffic, it is nasty. But she picked me up and we drove over to Bellevue to where her office is. And I got to go to their afternoon um, play session. Let's see. Let me try. I'll try to do a search for the word Bellevue. Maybe see that will turn up because it was in Bellevue. That's right. So I'm still looking for the name. But anyway, we go over there and I got to hang out with some very nice geeks. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, an office full of geeks. And what did I play? I played Tale of Two Cities, Flick 'em Up, and Code Names. First of all, Tale of Two Cities. Oh my God, this is one of the best games of the year. Why are not more people talking about how absolutely amazing Tale of Two Cities is? Now, unfortunately, Tale of Two Cities is really not a two-player game. You really need to have at least three players to play that game appropriately. But this is a tile-drafting game where, if you're playing at the proper player count, you've got somebody to your left and somebody to your right. And you've got a handful of tiles. And every turn, you're going to pick two of those tiles because... On your left and on your right, you're building two cities. You are... I'm sorry, did I call it Tale of Two Cities? It's Between Two Cities. That is the name. Between Two Cities. Is that right? Yeah, Between Two Cities. And um, you're, that's because you're building. You're building a city on your left and a build on your right. Every turn, you pick two tiles and put one of them in your city on your left and one in your city on the right. But here's the thing. So does everybody else. So when I'm putting a, a tile in the city to my right, my neighbor to the right... From their perspective, they're putting a city into their the they're putting a tile into the city on their left, and we're both putting tiles into the same city. So what's happening is we are effectively work. I am working cooperatively with my with the player to my right. We're trying to make the best city we can. At the same time, I am working cooperatively with the player to my left, and I am trying to make the best city I can with them. And so. 
I am effectively playing a two-player or a cooperative game. I'm cooperating with the person to the left. I'm cooperating with the person to the right. We're both trying to coordinate playing the same tiles because these tiles all have you know the kind of standard tile laying things. Oh, if you um, you, you you do set collection by placing these tiles. These tiles you have to play next to each other. These tiles are worth nothing unless they're next to these other tiles. So you have all these different tile laying rules. But what's cool is all right. Okay, I'm going to place this tile. I'm going to place this tavern, and hopefully the person to my left will understand that if we put a tavern, it's going to score a lot of points on the residences, and they'll put a residence down, and it'll be really awesome. And I'm hoping that's what they do, because I know I pass them a residence tile, because it's a tile drafting game. I know I'm going to pass them a tile, and hopefully they'll do the right thing. Because I'm trying to make my best city, I'm trying to make my best city. Now, the thing is, at the end of the game, once everybody is finished building their cities, whichever of my two cities has the lower value, that is my final score. So I want both my cities to be awesome. Um, but if I'm making awesome cities, I'm getting awesome cities to the players to the next to me. But what I'm hoping is they make awesome cities with me and make terrible cities with the person sitting opposite of me. It is a brilliant game, and it is so fun. And it's a fast game. It's like a 15-20 minute filler, but it's so deep. And there's so much... The game is all about reading your opponent and trying to figure out what they're going to do and, try, and trying to remember as you pass the tiles around, knowing that, okay, this is coming. Hopefully they'll be smart enough to do this because I'm passing it. It's going to be awesome for us. But meanwhile, I have to do another thing that's awesome over there. It's so clever. And um, I had, we, had, we played it twice, back to back. We all loved it. Oh, by the way, um, Julia Z is the one of the board game geek users. I don't have her husband's name. Her name is Julia. She's the one who picked me up. And I also met up with another guy, uh, Matthew, who had bought one of the games I had carried over that I thought had gotten lost in Russia. Um, I was meeting up with him just to deliver the game that he had bought from me in an auction. And he ended up coming along and hung out at this afternoon board game party as well. So um, that was Matthew. He's a MT. Uh, Kokali. So I played with him and Julia and Julia's husband. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. Uh, but anyway, so Tale of Two Cities, amaze balls. But unfortunately, if you don't have two humans, a human to your left and a human to your right, it just loses everything. As a two player game, it's okay, but it's just not going to get it done. As a three plus game, this is easily one of the 10 best games of the year by far. But I can't put it on my personal 10 best just because. But man, if I had a regular group, this would be uh, this would be come out every week. It is just so, so good between two cities. Okay. Yes, Honey Pie. Um, John Shepard, yes. And I just said his name. Sorry, John, I just said your last name, which is, means... Is, okay, I don't know if I was supposed to say your name or not. Jen just told it to me. I met John and Julia and Matt, and now Matt's good friends with them and all that. But anyway, hey, John, hey, Julia. Okay. Jen says hi as well. They were lovely people, all of them. Um, Julia picked me up and drove me to her office. John drove me to SeaTac. We were worried we wouldn't make it because, again, traffic from Bellevue to SeaTac, oh, it's a nightmare. Um, we did, we d didn't go through Mercer. We went down south through. Anyway, long story short, but so tale two or not to tale two between two cities, amazing. Uh, man, makes me wish one of those games that make me wish I could play more often with three plus players. Next up, what did we have? Oh, flick 'em up. Which I'd been excited about because you know Tom Vassell and crew have been raving about this game. I know it made his top 10 of the year. And Jen and I, we love the snot out of Catacombs, which is a really cool dungeon 
delving disc flicking game where one player, and I've done a run through for it. Jen and I did a live run through together actually for it. And it's a great game where one player is the dungeon master controlling the monsters, flicking discs around. The other player is the adventurer, a player controlling the adventurers, flicking discs around. And it's great. And so Flick 'em Up is a disc flicking game set in the Old West, where players play on teams, and you know, you're tr- there are a bunch of cowboys shooting at each other, and you have objectives and goals and stuff like that. So I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fantastic, because we love Catacombs so much. And yeah, none of us really liked it that much. I mean, we thought it was really clever. We played the um, kind of, it was, a, I forget the name of the mission, but it was the mission that was kind of a capture the flag sort of thing, where... We were, you know, we were shooting at. It was a shootout, and we were trying to, you know, shoot each other and all that. But we were also trying to steal each other's flags and get them across our own goalposts. Although it was money, we were trying to get the money out of their saloon and get it into the bank. They were trying to steal the money from the bank and get it to their saloon. But we were also, you know, running interference. And there were lots of clever things. This game is so clever, and the flicking works really, really well. It's really, really clever. Here's the thing that killed it for us. After we had been flicking for about, must have been close to an hour, we were ready for it to be done 40 minutes ago. I mean, because it's a really clever game, but it does not have the depth to warrant, to support such a long experience. If we were playing a a quick little death match of maybe 10 or 15 minutes, I think we would have had a good time. But when we got, when we were getting to the hour point, and by the way, Matt and I, we were clearly superior flickers to Julia and John. So we had taken the lead, and it was pretty obvious we were going to win because we were just fi- we were better at flicking than them. But they didn't want to do handicaps or anything like that. It's understandable. I don't think I would want to either. But they wanted to see it through, and it was just like a death march because the the mission was just incredibly long. There was a lot to do, and it took a long time. And I think that was... I mean, it was all our first time, and, you know, there were some rules lookups and whatnot, but I think it would still be... I mean, we would That was not a game that it's so simple. It's like Rampage. You don't want that game to go for more than 20 minutes. Otherwise, it's outstaying its welcome. And it definitely outstayed its welcome. And then it was worse by the fact that there was a big disparity between um, flicking abilities, because I'm actually a pretty good flicker, and Matt had never played a flicking game before, but it turns out he was pretty good, and John and Julia, they were getting better, but... And it's too bad because there are so many cool things. The shootouts when we both went into a saloon, and there was like really cool strategic positioning options. I imagine if we were all diehard flicking fans, we were all super diehard crokinole junkies, it might have it might have gone the distance. We might have been able to go the distance, but it, we were all kind of so miserable, we stopped before we actually won. Because it was a foregone conclusion. Matt and I were going to win. And so that was actually kind of disappointing. And it's interesting. Um, you know, what's it? Catacombs, that can take upwards of 90 minutes, even two hours. But that game has a lot of depth, and that game has a lot of highs and lows, because you're going through a series of, of quickly playing dungeons and doing a lot of leveling up and, you know, deciding what new monsters are going to be playing. So it has a really good ebb and flow. Flick 'em Up does not. Flick 'em Up just has like kind of this static that just goes on for too long. So it was a little bit of a disappointment. I'm glad I got to play it, but I don't think I need to play it again. And, um, you know, and my suspicions about it have been right. That's why I never picked it up in the first place, because it just wasn't for me. You have to be... And it's funny. I mean, actually, I've, I've always heard from most people, yeah, forget about the missions. Just throw a bunch of random stuff on the table and just start shooting each other and just play deathmatch. And I see why people say that, because then you're going to be a 10, 15-minute game, and it's probably going to be a good old 
um, highfalutin time. And maybe once you get really good, you'll be fast enough to play those objectives, those missions. But the missions were what I was excited about, and they kind of let me down. And then the last thing I played, I played some Codenames. Now, Jen and I, we played Codenames as a two-player game. We played it as a three-player game with all of the internet. I did, we did a run-through for that. That was a lot of fun. But I very much enjoyed playing it with four at this event. And, and you'll, you'll playing, again, with Matt and Julia and John and had a blast. And so, wow, it's just a phenomenal game. But I've already done a run-through, so I don't have to spend a lot of time talking about that. So I think that's where I'm going to... I mean, you know, So we played those games, and then we all said our goodbyes. We took some pictures, and John drove me to the airport. We were a bit nervous. The traffic is bad, but we did ultimately make it. Um, and uh, John and I have a secret that I can never tell Julia. And if Julia hears this, she's going to say, what's the secret? And I'm sorry, John. I, I won't say what, but anyway. Uh, it's something very embarrassing for John. And so now I'm just going to leave that there and now continue with my travels. Because now, after, on the whole, three very successful weeks, I had a great time with my mom. Very, very productive time. I had a great two game days. I, heck, I played more games outside of BGGCon than I did in BGGCon, but had a great time at BGGCon too. And again, you can see my run through for that. Now it's time to go home. But here's where things just get weird. Or you know what? We'll come back to that in a minute because, man, I need another drink of water. I'm exhausted. And, well, I just talked for 30 minutes straight. We'll be back soon, folks. Hang, hold on to your horses. Oh, my gosh, folks. Wow. This has gone on a bit longer than I thought, although I should have known better. I know originally I said right up front I was going to do a Q&A, but I don't think I'll be able to do a Q&A. I think Q&A is going to have to wait for the next podcast, which will be by the end of the month. I'm doing catch-up. This is my November podcast. We'll get our December podcast. We'll get the Q&A done there, and we'll also do... Um, I'm really behind on top tens as well. So, Jen, I'm, I'm committing her right now. She's going to be there for that entire podcast at the end of the year to wrap out, we'll probably fill it on December 31st, you know, New Year's Eve. I'll put that up. That'll be me and Jen talking about top 10 video games and top, well, actually, I should do this at the end. Anyway, sorry, we'll come back to that in a second. But I just got to finish the story because I haven't gotten home yet. So the original plan had been, I was going to, you know, I, I had my flights to Dallas but when I flew up to Mom's, it was a completely separate flight, unrelated, because, you know, so I, I flew American Airlines, a best airline in America, by the way, in all of the United States, is, is Alaska Airlines. They are the best. They have always been the best. They continue to be the best. I love Alaska Airlines. So I, I had to just, uh, you know, direct up to Alaska, and then, um, you know, I spent two weeks with Mom, and then I fly back on a Saturday back to Dallas. I spend another night at Tom Green's place, because Tom Green and his wife, Pam, are awesome. They are awesome? Um, yes, honey, You didn't fly to Alaska. No, I, I flew Alaska Airlines. Okay, but you said you flew to Alaska. I flew Alaska Airlines. Sorry, everybody. Um, so anyway... That was the original plan. I'd spend another night in Dallas, hang out with them again, and then fly back. That was the original plan. But while I was at BGGCon, a friend of mine who lives in New York says, Oh my God, you're going to be here for a month, or practically a month? you got to come out here. I can get you tickets to Saturday Night Live. And now you may or may not know me, but Saturday Night Live, seeing a live performance Saturday Night Live, that's been on my bucket list forever. I know it's been for for decades now, it's been always hip to beat up on Saturday Night Live and you know say, oh, it wasn't as good as when... I, everybody always remembers that Saturday Night Live was at its best when they were in college and now it's crap. That's what everybody always says. Whenever, that was, whenever they were in college, that's when it was great. Or in high school, that was just great and it's crap. I don't subscribe to that. I think Saturday Night Live is an amazing show where they put on an hour of live TV with only one week 
of prep every week. I think it's a minor miracle they pull it off week after week, year after year, decade after decade. It's a wonderful show. And yeah, they all, all the acts don't hit, but it doesn't matter. They're performing for you live. So just sit back and enjoy it. That's always been my attitude, and I've always wanted to see Saturday Night Live live, in person. And so he says, I can get you tickets. And so then the plan starts to change. Originally, I was just, you know, I, you know, and I already had all my tickets in place. So I call up Alaska, and it's a minor fee to change so that instead of flying Alaska Air up to Seattle and then back to Dallas, I change it. I go up to Seattle, but now I'm flying back a day earlier. I'm flying on Friday on a red eye to New York so that I will arrive at New York at 6 a.m. in the morning, um, and then I just have to hang out in New York all day, and um, I'll, I'll get to see a live performance of Saturday Night Live, which you know, been a dream of mine forever. And then I'll have to book a one-way from New York back to Dallas, because my original flight is still flying out of Dallas. And I, I, tr I see if I can change that. To change the flight out of... to fly. I'd like to just fly from New York back to Malta, but I can't change that because I'd have to do a ticket upgrade and there'd be fees, and it was going to cost like 2000 bucks to make that change. So I can't make that change. But the change to Alaska, because Alaska Airlines is awesome, is minimal. And then um, I, I book a flight with Spirit Air, a one-way, because it was going to be like 120 bucks, And I figure it's worth it. I, I so want to see this. So you know, we're going to make this trip back via Spirit Air. And I have a three-hour layover. I'm going to land, um, and uh, you know, and 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 and, and actually, yeah, I'm, I'm going to land and have a three-hour layover, and then get on my original flight, and that's going to be cool. The interesting thing is, I have a box of stuff, a few games, but all kinds of stuff. You know, some new shooting equipment. I got a tripod. Jen has all kind. You know, I've got this big gigantic box. This. 40-pound box, salt lick sauce. Thank you, talks of Crits Happen. Scott Morris, um, you know, we have already been enjoying our salt lick. Oh, my gosh. I've got, I've, got, I've, got, I've, got, I've got 15 pounds of salt lick sauce i got to bring back. Now, I was not... The original plan was not to take this box of stuff up to my mom in Seattle and then fly it back to Dallas. Since I was flying up Seattle and back to Dallas, Tom Green, ref Tom Green, the most awesome guy on the planet. Everybody check out his game. I remember the link for that is down in the show notes. Um, he, they agreed to hold my box. When I fly back to Dallas, we're gonna, I'm going to spend the night at his place. We'll get the box. We'll play some more games. He'll drive me to the airport the next day. That's the plan. When this New York thing pops up, everything changes. Now I'm flying from Seattle to New York. And then I've got the, 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 the quickie direct flight from New York to Dallas. Where before, I had the night to meet up with Tom and get my box. Now I've got a three-hour window to meet up with Tom. But he's game. He says, no problem. I'll just swing out to the airport. I'll drop the box off. And, I, and three hours should be plenty fine. Okay. So, I fly to New York... Um, Alaska Air is awesome. Have I mentioned? Um, you know, I, I figure out how to take the the train from LaGuardia to New York. I arrive at six a.m. Oh, and my friend, he decides he and his wife they're going to come into the city, and they're going to go to the. You know, he's going to get tickets for all three of us. You know, because he knows a guy who knows a guy and that kind of stuff. You know, because he's connected, and so they're they're going to make a weekend of it, get away from their kids, and um, you know, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to you know, and so basically, I'm just going to get to stay at their hotel because I am cheap. Have I mentioned I'm cheap? But I want to make this happen, and so I, I show up, and because it was a red eye, and I can't sleep on planes at all. Uh, it, 
I don't think they had as good a time as they could have. They came into the city. They were hoping to hang out with me for the full day, but I ended up sleeping all day because I couldn't sleep on the red-eye flight that left Seattle at like 7 o'clock at night and got into New York at 6 in the morning or something like that. I forget the particulars. But anyway, so I slept through most of the day, but um, actually that's not true. I, I, I went with him in the morning to like his favorite breakfast restaurant of all time, and I had this crazy apple pancake that was... Uh, he was right. It was to die for. It was absolutely amazing. I can't remember the name. It's like a it's like a New York institution, this little breakfast cafe. And we got there before the rush because he used to live in New York and now he lives outside of New York. So he knows he, he knew all the tricks. I mean, it was like hanging out with like an experienced New Yorker who knew all the shortcuts and whatnot. So we had that. But then I was so exhausted. I went and slept for like five hours. And I think they went to the Museum of Natural History or something like that. And then we eventually I woke back up. We went out to dinner. We walked around, you know, Times Square, did all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we just caught up, had a great time, and then we go to the show. And I did not know how connected he is. I'm just excited about getting to see the show, you know, without having to wait for hours in line. And I, I don't know if the tickets are free or if they cost. I don't know any of that stuff. He just got the tickets, and because he knows a guy. But he's really connected. We show up there. Um, he, we, we just skip the line. We walk right in. He knows people. We are getting, um, you know, while they're doing dress rehearsal because they do dress rehearsal before the live performance on Saturday night. Um, we are getting behind the scenes tours. Um, a friend of his is you know, he's friends with the guy who I forget his name. His name was Joe. I remember. I don't remember his last name. But he's been there for like twenty years, and he's the lead set designer builder. So while they're doing dress rehearsal and we're watching that backstage and we're seeing people take notes about what scenes, or, you know, what what um, skits are going to get cut and what changes have to be made, he's talking to us about everything that goes into building all the sets and it's fascinating. And he's showing us the blueprints and he's talking about how they they build them out in New I forget where it wasn't New Jersey, but they build them out in a warehouse and they transport them and it's all very kanban. They get them together at the last minute. But while this was going on, you know, he was getting his notes about stuff they have to change, like. There was a skit. Uh, the, the show was Ryan Gosling was the guest. And apparently, Ryan Gosling, when he would wave his arms in this one skit, he kept bumping some prop. So they had to change the layout at the last second so he wouldn't bump the prop. And it was just like all this little... In, you know, for like a Saturday Night Live junkie like me, this is heaven, getting to see all this behind-the-scenes stuff. And we're, we're walking through where, you know, where all the, the dressing rooms are. And, you know, and everybody's getting ready for the show. And you know, we, 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 go, we, we get to see the control room. Um, you know, or all the directors. It's just, you know, it, I mean, that was like NASA, you know, um, you know, mission control. It was absolutely amazing. Once in a lifetime, and you know, I am so thankful for Scott, um, my friend. I, you know, and I, I, I knew he was connected. I didn't know he was that connected. It was incredible. You know. If you've ever seen any kind of sketch where you know where they leave the stage and they run, oh, we got to go out on the stage between the set rehearsal. And I've got pictures of me on the stage, you know, you know, the stage where they always do the 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 monologues and stuff like that. And we got to see how, you know, and, and again, Joe was giving us the tour. It was just amazing. It was, it was splendid. It was absolutely fantastic. And then the show was actually really good. Um, you know, it wasn't the best one ever, but Ryan Gosling was great. And of course, it's going to be better when you're there live. I mean. 
you know, something that you might think is, oh, yeah, that was kind of cute. If you're watching, you know, in your home, you see it there live. You know, there's the energy in the room. The actors are putting their all into it, and you just can't help but laugh. And it's interesting. I didn't know this. Um, Michael Che, who is, you know, he, he does, he's one of the weekend anchor guys. He uh, got up and did a stand-up routine warm-up for us. That guy is hilarious. I mean, I would have been happy to pay to see his stand-up. So he did a great warm-up set, and then um, Keenan you know, who's been on the show forever, he um, comes out, you know, dressed up to the nines like James Brown um, or something like that. And uh, who was it? Cecily and... Um, oh, I have to see. And uh, oh, I can't remember... Cecily and... Oh, I can't remember which two other girls. You know, I mean, three, you know, four of the cast members came out and sang a Blues Brothers classic. What was it? It was... Uh, was it Soul? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It was Gimme Some Lovin'. And they just knock it out of the park. Keenan destroys it. It's like, you know, John Belushi had come to life, and it was really, really good. Um, and then we got to see the show. So that was amazing. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So, again, I cannot thank Scott enough. Had such a great time. Then we go back to the hotel. Um, you know, they actually stay up till like 4 o'clock in the morning because, you know, he hangs out with his friends from the show. Because, uh, like I said, he's got juice. He's well-connected. Um, but me, I'm, I'm exhausted because I'm going to have to catch the plane back the next morning. You know, I, I, my plane leaves at noon the next day. It's only got this three-hour layover. i got to figure out how to get from downtown New York, not to LaGuardia now, but to... Uh, was it LaGuardia? Yeah, I flew into JFK, and now I'm flying out through LaGuardia on Spirit Air. But that's okay. I figure I can figure it out in the morning. And so, and I do, and it turns out um, I'm, I'm going to have to take a couple, I'm going to have to make a couple bus transfers, and then there's a direct bus out. It all makes sense. I say goodbye to them at 10 o'clock. They drop me off at the bus terminal, you know, at the, at the bus stop. It's going to be fine. As I'm right, well, first of all, the thing that happens is I find out, one thing they didn't know, because even though they're hardcore New Yorkers, apparently they've never taken the bus. They only take the subway. The bus does not accept money. Or, or does not accept bills. They only accept coins or this Metro Pass. And I didn't have a Metro Pass. I only had change. So I couldn't pay because I had no coins. I had no Metro Pass. And, but the bus is already going. So I say, what do I do? And he says, I don't know. Ask. And so I have to actually address the whole bus, a bus full of 20 um, grizzled New Yorkers. Hello, could anybody break three bucks? Because I've got my three bucks and I need it in coins because it was two seventy-five, And they just all stare at me silently, kind of glaring like, who the hell is this rube from out of town? And I say, please, guys, I have nothing. Look, I mean, can anybody help me out? And then some little old lady says, okay, I'll help. And I walk over to her, and she gives me four quarters. And then, because I think everybody said no because they realized, well, I don't have three cha- three bucks of change in quarters because nobody had that. Everybody thought they had to do it. But then piece by, and then somebody else says, I'll help. And then somebody else says, I'll help. And it turns out New Yorkers are really nice. And so I get my money, and so that's fine. Okay, that was the one thing that's going to go bad. Everything else is going to be smooth sailing from here. I almost couldn't ride the bus, but then um, a nice thing about riding the bus instead of the subway is. You're above ground, so you can actually check your email if you've got 3G, and I do. And I check my mail, and I notice, oh, crap, I've gotten two emails so far this morning from Spirit Air saying, we're sorry to tell you, but your flight has been delayed by seven hours. And I'm like, ah, I'm already on the way to the airport. If I miss this flight, if, 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 if my flight's delayed seven hours, there's no way I'm making my connecting flight in Dallas. And I've already found out, if I miss that connecting flight, it's going to be like over 2000 bucks for me to make any kind of change to that flight. And like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. 
And so now I'm on the bus. This bus ride is about an hour long, give or take, I think, to get all the way out to LaGuardia. And this is an hour of me frantically on the phone um, with my friend, with Scott, who got on the phone with Spirit, and he's trying to work it out. And I'm trying. I'm on kayak, trying to find a different flight, and I'm I'm skyping with Jen at the same time, and she's trying to look into stuff to see if we can get stuff changed. And it's just a nightmare. And you know this this bus of the damned. And I know I'm never going to make it, and we're going to be out. And you know, as great as Saturday Night Live was, it wasn't two thousand bucks great, not even remotely. And so I'm desperate. And meanwhile, Spirit keeps sending me updates. Oh, now it's only five hours delayed. Now it's four hours delayed. Now it's six hours delayed. And what are you doing? You're driving me nuts. So I can't trust them. So I get to the airport. Oh, and along the way, there was another little problem too. Because oh, what happened? Oh, that's right. I had to make one exchange from one bus to another. And um, but I hadn't. And when, when I paid for the first one, I got a metro card, but I hadn't gotten the metro card stamped, so I had to leave the bus at a stop and then stamp it at this machine and then get right back on the bus. And the guy was cool. He said, "Don't worry, don't worry, you'll have time." And so I get out, and you know, there's a whole bunch of people getting on the bus, and I'm like, ah, I can't find the stamp, and I stamp it, and I barely get back on the bus. He was going to drive away without me. Ah! But I get back on. So anyway, that was a little terror that happened in the middle of everything else. So, um, you know, Jen's working on it. Scott's working on it. I'm working on it. I'm Skyping. It's, it's all insane. My, and my iPhone is going dead, of course, because I'm driving it's, you know, into the ground by Skyping and emailing and web browsing all at the same time. So I'm worried I'm going to suddenly lose contact with everybody. This is a nightmare. And um, so Scott actually gets uh, Spirit to say, well, you know, when you get there, go to the Spirit desk and we'll, f- we'll try to find it. And Jen has found that, okay, there's another flight um, with American that is leaving like a half an hour after the Spirit flight I was supposed to go. And Spirit and uh, American have a deal. So in theory, I go to the Spirit... If I, go, I get there, I go to the Spirit desk, and if it's quick enough, they should be able to transfer me over without any additional fee because it's their fault that I'm missing my flight. So they'll make it up. Um, and then I can catch the American flight, and I should still make it now. I suddenly only have a two-hour layover instead of a three-hour, but it should be fine, so that's what we do. Um, I get to, you know, the, the bus drops us off. It drops you off kind of outside the airport, and you have to cross a very major lane, and I'm like, come on, come on, come on. I got to go, I got to go. I don't have much time. I've got like 20 minutes now to get to Spirit, because it, it took longer, of course, than it was supposed to, so I don't even know if I'm going to be able to make this. I got to get to Spirit, I gotta get, and then they've got to do this thing with America, and then I got to get through security, and I got to do all this stuff, and this major road with this, um, you know, the, the crossing light will never go, and so I just say, screw it, and I just bolt across this very major road full of lots of traffic and everybody's like he's crazy and I'm dragging my luggage as I'm doing this and there's like a this and you know when I make it out to the center island and it still hasn't changed I'm like come on I gotta go so I try to make both the other one but I try and take a shortcut because if I go the long way I'm gonna have to go uh, I, I have to go a long way around or I go diagonally cross the busy three lane minor highway um and if I can hop over a hurdle, I'll probably shave at least two minutes off because I won't have to go this long way around and all that. So I do that, and I'm running, and I've got the thing, and I'm six foot three. I hop hurdles all the time for breakfast, but not this time. My foot catches it, and I face plant hard. And my luggage goes everywhere, and it's like, ah! And everybody, you know, they're just now crossing the road. And if I just waited, I could, but, you know, and so, and I, but anyway, I pick myself, I run in, all kind of banged up now, 
And um, the Spirit Airlines desk, of course, is at the far, far other end of the terminal. But I got across the American. So I think, okay, I'm going to go to the American. Hey, could you please figure, could you just call Spirit? I don't have time to run down there. Your flight's about to leave. Blah, 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 blah. And I, you know, I'm completely out of breath because I'm in sprinting. I don't think I'm bleeding from this fall, but I, you know, I took a really bad scrape. And I walk up, and they say, it's okay, sir. It's okay. Just breathe. Just explain the situation. And I explain the situation as fast as I can. And they say, I'm sorry, sir. That flight is booked. I, you can't get on it. It's impossible. And I'm like, oh, my God. So all that for nothing. I can't even get on this flight. And this was the only one Jen found. Um, and so what do I do now? And so I'm supposed to go over to Spirit. They're supposed to help me out. But the American Airlines people, they say, well, you know what? Um, you know, and they look. They check every airline. There's nobody else that they can, that, that, you know, they can check. But they do, there were two airlines they couldn't check. They couldn't check Virgin and one other airline. I can't remember which because their, their systems weren't linked. And they say, well, go try that. So I head over and I talk to Virgin and they say, we've got one. It's, it's the, um, they're boarding now. You, uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're boarding now. We can maybe hold it for you. Are you going to buy it right now? Now, my original flight, you may recall, with Spirit was like 120, 130 bucks, something like that. It was just a quick one way. By the way, folks, Never fly Spirit Air is my only advice to you. Um, I'm never even going to give them a second thought. This was a nightmare. All this crazy stuff that happened. Nobody else was having any delays. Just Spirit Air for some reason. But anyway, although, I mean, still better to delay than to have a plane crash. So I guess I can't complain too much, but still. this. Um, so I stop at Virgin. They say, yes, you can get on it. You have to decide right now because it's boarding. We will expedite you through um, security. We'll get you there. Um, you, there are seats. 350 bucks. I'm like, ah! That's like, that's almost like triple what I had to pay. No! And so my board game peak efficiency guy kicks in. I can't do that. I should keep going. I should go to Spirit. This is their fault. They'll figure it out. But I got to decide. If they can't figure it out, they're not going to help me with the other thing, which I already know is going to be like two grand if I don't make that connecting flight. So... And I can't talk to Jen. I mean, we can't, you know, because 300, you know, Jen and I, we're retired. I mean, 300 bucks is a lot of money to us. I mean, I was already going so above and beyond. I mean, by doing this whole thing anyway. So suddenly now, whatever it was, 350 bucks. And I just, okay, I got to do it. I got to do it. I, 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 I can't, you know, it was a risk reward. It was a short-term, long-term strategic choice I had to take. And I took that take and I got on Virgin. And by the way, Virgin Airlines is awesome. Their flights are amazing, very roomy. Um, they were really nice. So I, I buy the ticket. They say, okay, come with me. She leaves the desk. She, I mean, she's practically running with me, or we're kind of speed walking. She gets me through, like, you know, um, gets me in front of all the security, gets me right up to the door, and they're very nice and very friendly, and I have a very good flight back. Um, and Virgin is awesome. Um, but I guess you get what you pay for, right? Because they cost like three times as much. But anyway, I eventually make it to Dallas. Um, but the Virgin thing means now I don't have as much time to connect as I used to. It's not a nice, comfortable thing. Meanwhile, um, you know, while, while the flight is taking off, I should have turned off my phone, but I'm frantically sending texts to Jen saying, Jen, you got to contact Ref Tom Green and tell him all the plans have changed. You got to tell him. You got to tell him. I don't know how to contact him. You have to figure out how to contact him on BGG because I don't know how to do it. And, um, you know, and Jen's like, I have no idea how to do this. And I say, honey, you have to figure it out. You're flying into the wrong airport. Oh, that's right. Yes. I'm flying into the wrong airport now. I'm flying into a completely different airport. So I leave it with Jen to figure out. And she has no idea who Ref Tom Green is. She's never been on Board Game Geek. She's got to figure out how to contact this guy um, and, and, and get that. And I just got to get on the plane and go and just hope that Tom Green is there for me when I land. He is. And he drives me 
to, um, to from whatever the, the love field to Dallas-Fort Worth, although along the way I'm telling him this story, and um, I end up confusing him so much because he's so unwrapped in the story, he ends up missing exits and the GPS... If you've ever tried to use GPS in Dallas with all the frontage roads, it's a nightmare. So we end up taking a very long route. And so we're a little nervous now that we're not going to make it on time because what should have been a quick drive. And so now the pressure is on again, and I get there, and oh my God, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And I make it, and I check my bag, and everything's fine, and it's all cool. And I think the story is over. But folks, the story is not over. Um, I fly American... Back to, um, so now this is the original thing I had booked. And remember, I started this whole podcast by saying I tried to book the cheapest, weirdest flight I could to minimize the Jen's discomfort for, you know, having to pick me up at midnight or drop me off at three in the morning and stuff like that. So I had kind of a, an oddball connection, but it all added up. This travel agency I used to book all this stuff. Um, so anyway, um, I'm flying back via American directly to London. From London, I have a direct flight to Malta. Jen gets to pick me up on whatever it is, Monday at 6 in the afternoon, or 3 in the afternoon. It's going to be great. We're going to go shopping. Everything's fine. Plus, you'd booked it so that you didn't have to go from Heathrow to Gatwick. Or oh, yes. Versa. Yeah, normally coming back from America to Malta is a pain in the butt because when you come through London, you land internationally at London Heathrow, but then you have to take a bus, and it's a long, harrowing bus ride from London Heathrow to Gatwick. That's what we normally have to do. I wanted to avoid all that, and so it's great. So I booked this weird thing that I'm going to... I'm, I'm actually flying British Air, but they're partnered with American, so I'm really flying with American, but it's supposedly British Air, and, Br- and then a British Air flight from London to Malta. Here's the first problem. It, ostensibly, all of this, uh, my, my, my bags were just supposed to fly through no problem because it was all operated by British Air. But when I land, I find out, oh, no, sir, it's not. Um, you'll have to go pick up your bag that I had checked, this box I picked up in, and, uh, p- picked up in Dallas from Tom Green, and you'll have to transfer it yourself because we have no automatic transfer because American and British or American and Air Malta, I forget what it was, but they can't make the transfer. And so suddenly, I had a two-hour layover. This should have been enough time to get from Terminal 3 to Terminal 4 and get on the plane. But suddenly now, I'm having to get my bag, and that takes an hour. And I have to take this terminal thing, and then I have to check the bag. Long story short, because of this extra hassle that the, um, the booking agent did not take into account, uh, um, I missed my flight back to, back to Malta. That was the only flight for the rest of the day. I'm sitting, it's like 8 in the morning in in England, in London, and the next flight back to Malta is like, I think, 11 o'clock at night. Something like that. 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Or well, so I it was it was yeah, oh yeah that's right it was ten in the morning and eight fifty at night is when I have to fly back and so suddenly now I'm looking at sitting around for uh, you know almost twelve hours in London Heathrow with nothing to do and Air Malta has gone home because they have an eight in right. the morning flight and yeah. A- and the thing is, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get on this late-night flight because, um, well, first of all, by the time I finally get there, the Air Malta people, they've already left for the day. But there's one person who's still... She was just kind of hanging around. She should have left, but she happened to be there. And so she kind of said, well, your next flight's going to be whatever it is at 9 o'clock tonight. Um, but, oh, it looks booked. I can put you... It wasn't called standby. It was called rollover. And because I had missed my flight and I was a rollover, if the flight was full, I'm the first person to not get a seat. 
or something like that. So it's kind of like standby. And so she says, well, here, this is what I can do. Um, and you can leave. And then she leaves. And so she sets that up. And then I've got 10 hours of sitting around with nothing to do in London Heathrow. Oh, wait, no, that's right. She couldn't do it because of the weirdness of my flight. Because it turns out I hadn't flown in. Um, Somehow I was booked through... Oh, gosh, Air Dubai or something like that. Somehow they were involved with this, and they were in Terminal 3. So nobody could book me on this connecting flight, um, you know, which I was, by the way, I was going to have to pay like whatever it was, another 200 bucks in difference, uh, or no, 200 pounds now, to make this connecting flight. But otherwise, I was going to have to wait and, uh, like another 24 hours until the next day when the flight would be at 8 a.m. in the morning. And? And, Jen says... And they didn't have any record of his ticket being used from Dallas to Heathrow, so they, that's why they couldn't like sort out some kind of other transfer from Heathrow to Malta. Yeah. And then, you know, so this is what it looks like, and then the lady leaves <laughs> with it unresolved because she was already doing me a favor, and I'm on the phone with this stupid travel agent trying to figure it out. And Jen, no, that's not true. I'm on Skype. Jen's on the phone with them. I'm on Skype with her. She's trying to relay what they are saying, and, you know, and all, it's just this nightmare yep. of trying to find out what is going on. Why is this happening? And then eventually the lady leaves because she's got to go home. She was very nice, but she had to go home. And now, well, to be fair, I've got 10 hours to figure this out, but this travel agency cannot, is, or they're completely worthless. They eventually figure out, like I said, it was Air New Zealand or Air Dubai. Somehow, this airline that I didn't even know was involved was involved, and I, everything had been booked through them, and they were the connector that connected all these other airlines. So I had to travel personally back from Terminal, 3 to ter- Terminal 4 to Terminal 3 and go talk to them. And now here's the thing. You don't understand. I'm traveling. You may have seen this in um, some of my trips to Essen videos. I'm not traveling with a suitcase. I'm traveling with a big brown cardboard moving box um, with no wheels, with nothing. And I'm having to... Because originally, I wasn't going to have to carry this thing around. It was just going to get transferred from one plane to another. But suddenly it wasn't. And I'm having to use this thing. And I'm using trolleys where I can. But you can't use trolleys when you take the tram from Terminal 3 to Terminal 4. So I've already had a real pain in the ass trying to get to my flight, which I was late for. And then it turns out I can't. Now i got to go all the way back to Terminal 3, dragging this heavy 40-pound box that was right on the hairy edge of being able to be checked. And I've got no way to carry it. So... And I've got I've got my normal bag that you know my my carry on, and I've got this big check bag with no wheels. This is a nightmare. You get you, I mean, and it's constantly dropping. It's falling over. I'm terrified that all the bottles of salt lick barbecue sauce inside that they have all shattered and they're spilling all their barbecue sauce over all of the games I've brought back and all everything that Jen's brought back. It's just a nightmare. And eventually, I get back to whatever it was, Air Dubai, and I talk to them and explain, and they finally find a record of me, and they say, yes, this should not have been booked. This was impossible. You could have never made this connection. And I say, things you could have told me yesterday. So, you know, they eventually get cleared. And, and but this took hours. This, you know, but Jen on the phone with the travel agent, me going back and forth, this took the better part of like three or four hours to get this worked out. We eventually get it worked out, but I still don't know if I'm going to get on this Air Malta flight tonight. And if I don't, I'm stuck there for another 12 hours till the next one tomorrow morning. But in the meantime, I just curl up in a corner. At least um, Heathrow has free Wi-Fi. I can at least be thankful for that, because it would have been even more of a nightmare if I couldn't be Skyping with Jen. And eventually, so I sit around for hours. I ate uh, a meal that was way too freaking expensive at... Um, Pret, although it was nice, but it was 
or I'm sorry, yeah, Cafe Rouge. It was nice. They were very nice. They let me plug my power cord in for a while because my laptop and my phone were pretty much dead by now with all this crap that I'm going through. Eventually, but I can't, I feel bad staying there forever because I'm going to be there for like another five hours. And so eventually I just go find a corner, a little power cord. Because here's the thing. I can't, until Air Malta shows up like two hours before the evening flight, I can't go through security. So I'm stuck at the departure side where there's nothing. There's no comfy chairs. There's no place to sit. There's just Cafe Rouge. I sat there for like two hours until I eventually felt bad because I was just taking up a seat and I didn't want to spend any more money um, because I already spent way too much. So I eventually go curl up in a corner. And that's where you can see I I filmed my top 10 something or other. My top 10 surprise games, because I had nothing to do for the last few hours. Eventually, Air Malta shows up. Uh, the flight is booked, but I do make it on, just barely. It's an incredibly uncomfortable flight back, but I make it back. But by now, I'm getting back to Malta at 1 a.m. Originally, it's supposed to be night. I get back in the afternoon. And here's the thing. Jen decides she does not want to pick me up in Malta at 1 a.m. And I don't blame her. I don't blame her. Um, because we've been having some car problems lately, and she just doesn't feel safe. If she's going to drive all the way over to Malta, she wants to do it during the day. She doesn't want the car to break down in Malta, because we have to take a ferry back. And it would be very expensive to get a tow truck to tow us back. And in the middle of the night, it would be even worse. So she figures, she arranges for me a, uh, a taxi service kind of a thing. And it turns out it's just like, just like this bus that could have carried like 30 people, and it's there at 1 in the morning to get me. And um, so I'm going to take that, and this guy is going to drive me up to the ferry, and Jen will just pick me up on the other side at 2 in the morning at Gozo. But here's the thing. I am landing at 1 a.m., and the next ferry is at 2, or like 1.45 or something like that. I forget the exact time. So anyway, this bus, this gigantic bus, which is empty except for me, has to get me to the ferry in 45 minutes. And if you know Malta, that's a crazy tight drive. Because if I don't catch that ferry, since it's, it's past midnight, there's not another ferry for another two hours. And so I'd, I'd be stuck until, whatever, four or five in the morning waiting to get on the ferry from this already trip from hell. So to be fair, this bus driver, he kicks ass. I don't know how he drove that ginormous bus as fast as he did down those winding country lanes. And by the way, at this point, I haven't slept for 24 hours. Um, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, no, yeah, right, that's right, because I hadn't slept the previous night. Because I remember, this was all coming off of Saturday Night Live. So I had stayed up till 2 in the morning for Saturday Night Live, and then I only slept like 5 hours because I had to go. So I've slept 5 hours, and then I haven't slept for like 30-plus hours since then. And so this guy's driving like a madman through Malta in this super bus, trying to get me because he appreciates and he's sympathetic to my plight. We get there. And, the, and you know, it's, we're going to make it by seconds. And remember, I've still got this ridiculously huge box. Um, and I'm trying to carry that. And it's, by the way, it is beat to hell now. We had to retire it afterwards. It's all ripped up. Stuff is falling out of it. Uh, and, but it still weighs 40 pounds, and I'm trying to carry it. At the same time, I'm trying to do my other stuff. And the ferry terminal is very long, and there's this long ramp. The, what, honey pie? And... No, I, I, Jen was texting me tips about, you can call the ferry, you know, but you know, we didn't. We, right. You know, I, I think he did the best he could. But anyway, so we get there. The ferry's already loading. I have seconds 
to make it. And I'm having to carry this 40-pound box that's falling apart up this long hill, you know, this long ramp, this endless ramp. And now here's another little trick. After I'd gone through security at the airport, I had never bothered to put my belt back on because I'm like, okay, I am done wearing this damn belt. So now I am running up this incredibly endless, it seems endless, steep ramp to try to get on the ferry, carrying this 40-pound box, in the, and my pants are falling down because I'm not wearing my belt anymore. And so I'm trying to hold my pants up with one hand, carry the box with the other hand, pull the thing with a third hand that I don't have, and I'm literally shouting, because I can't see. It's around a corner. I'm saying, please, hold the ferry, hold the ferry! And I don't know if they're going to hold it or not. And I get around the corner, and they are just then pushing the button to raise the, lamp, the ramp. I don't know if they heard me or not, but the ramp is starting to raise, and I just like barely make it in. And I make it in, I tell, I text Jen, I make it in, she picks me up, I go home, and I sleep forever. And that was my trip home from BGGCon. And I, you know what I think, folks? I think we're going to stop the podcast right there. We'll do Q&A next time. Jen will join us. I have a whole bunch of top tens I have to talk about. Top ten video games, top ten of the year, top ten surprise games, top ten civilization games. So I think next time will be a top ten Q&A, but... We are done. And thanks for listening, everybody. Any questions, comments, concerns, as always, let me know. You can send questions to questions at rotto.com. Jen and I will try to answer those in the next podcast. But otherwise, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. 